is fiddling while Shad's money burns, and the cult of Cornette speaks today on a variety of topics, all that, and so much more. And joining me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you, when he says, thanks guys, he really means it, the great Brian Last, everybody. Hi, it's great (laughs) to be here tonight in Last Manor. And aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again, speaking naturally, not like a billionaire robot. (laughs) One of these days, he's got to say, I love lamp. Do you think in the script it says blink, like with parentheses, (laughs) after certain words, like pause, blink? Well, they got the high-tech teleprompter now. It used to be the just black and white, like the graphics of Pong, but now I think they can put it in color. So the oh. stage directions such as blink and smile are in red, and then the text is in black, and they have it. I don't know. He might now be on a bit of the sodium pentothal. The propofol <laughs> may, Come on. may not have worked, but hey, we'll talk about that later. And, and again, this week... An illustration that the two polar opposites, we, we've got no, none of the porridge, Brian, none of the porridge that's just right. We've got the polar extremes. We have the WWE is a multi-billion dollar company now, and they're clean, and they're supposedly wholesome, and they're safe, and they don't want anybody to get hurt, and ain't nothing really violent going to go on here to offend anybody, or we're not going to say anything over the line. Look at our great entrances. And on the other side, you've got complete fucking anarchy. You've got (laughs) nobody is in charge. You've got chaos. It's like (laughs) watching a fucking two-hour multi-car interstate pileup at a deer crossing where it's just over and over again and to the point where you're like, fuck is anybody? Constantly people are injured. Nothing really makes sense. Anything can happen in any moment and more of it usually does than any other place on earth. So it's a clear choice, I guess. Maybe that's the marketing strategy they're going for. We'll talk about that too when we get to AEW and the... uh, Booking malfeasance, and it, it's not even unprofessional anymore. There's some segments that actually exhibit some professional behavior, but it's, for example, it's it might be wonderful if the baby face is so fired up to get revenge that he jumps the heel when he's coming out in the entrance way and starts the fight. But not in every match, or if the heel is such a sneaky, underhanded bastard that he jumps the Honorable babyface from behind as he's making his entrance, but not four times a night. 
They're all just doing their own thing. Nobody is in control. Yeah. Anyway, before we get to anything else, we've got the big, over the last couple of days, just hearing about this, the big political news. Brian, have you heard politics, the world? There's an amazing thing going on right now. I heard this may be a YouTube edit, so I have heard the news, yes. Well, the governor of Hawaii. Oh. What about old governor of Hawaii out there, whatever his name may be? Have you, you've heard about this, right? This is a big, it's big news. Are you talking about the petition to make me the governor of Hawaii, Hawaiian Brian? No, no. The governor of Hawaii, apparently, of a, an experienced, I guess, ex-emergency room doctor, physician, or some kind of, you know, uh, he's got a medical professional background, idly minding his own business, sees a guy riding down the road to pickup truck, fall off the truck and land on his head. And he, the governor of Hawaii, what, what's his name? Governor Aloha, takes it upon himself to go over and treat that fellow until the emergency medical technicians arrive and et cetera. And they had footage of him there doing it and, and conveying all the care that he'd given the patient to these doctors and come to find out that the same governor the same Governor Aloha three weeks ago just was driving down the road and sees a big car wreck and rescues the victims. And there's a fucking picture they put up on the screen of him pulling some people out of a goddamn car along with other authorities. It's all turned over and everything. And I'm wondering, is the governor of Hawaii a fucking jinx? Or Forrest Gump? Or is he doing this on purpose to get these headlines? How does this fucking guy... He's the governor. He's not just driving around town all day going to fucking Arby's. How does he end up at the scene of a tragedy every couple weeks and it gets covered on the news? This will be a part of my campaign to point out these problems, these weird coincidences. I mean, it is Hawaii. Maybe he likes to be on the road. Maybe I should go to the North Shore, see what's going on. How long can you be on the road in Hawaii before you get wet, unless you're just driving around in a circle? Maybe he likes driving around in a circle or a semicircle. Until he sees an accident, possibly causing it. What do you think? But anyway, I, I don't know anything about this story. I haven't followed it at all, but you obviously have, and you've seen whatever evidence there is. What do you think? I think he's. He, it, this is a, a big publicity campaign. He's going to run for president. He's going to run for president on the I actually save all your, you people's lives ticket. He's got actual video and audio and photographic footage of him saving people's lives, literally. And he's going to say, I'm going to do that for all of y'all. No more of this fucking metaphorical bullshit. I'm going to rove around the country and literally just save everybody's fucking life. But again, you pointed it out because of these coincidences, it seems somewhat fishy or it could. If another accident happens today, let's say, he's driving around and he sees one, mm -hmm. should he stop? Or oh, would yeah, it be I... bad for him to stop because people will think this is ridiculous? No, no, because he, what he's doing is he's priming the pump right now. Even, even, if he had pump. To give it, even if he had to give it a little nudge, let's say he cut the first guy's brake line. Well, I didn't say that. And, that wasn't what I was accusing him of. Let's say that, 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 that he created the pothole that that truck hit that caused the guy to fall out of the truck on his head he's priming the pump once that people get used to the fact that he's doing this then he can go around and find real emergencies 
See, it's a strategy too, with all these potholes he's creating, he's going to create jobs to fix the potholes. That's right. And then when those people are hit by cars, he's going to be right there on the spot to fucking give them mouth-to-mouth -mouth rejuvenation. President Pothole. Yeah. It'd be better than President Pigfucker, and that's who else is in the soup, ladies and gentlemen. Donald J. Trump, the disgraced ex-president of these beleaguered United States of America, for those of you around the world who may not be up on the latest news over the past couple of days, has been indicted by a grand jury on, how, how do they say it, Brad? Seven different crimes and 37 counts or thereabouts. Well, we're federal crimes, Espionage Act, showing nuclear secrets, obstruction of justice, on tape admitting it. With the fucking lawyers read the indictment, they quit. They just said, fuck it. <laughs> there was footage of them walking out of the goddamn building. <laughs> I didn't it's see that. They were walking out of their building with their fucking hands up like, we're not part of this. <laughs> the active shooter's still in there. We saw this and said, fuck it. I called <laughs> in 2016 or tw whenever he started this whole charade brian i don't even know that, that footage exists on youtube or our the patreon podcast or the arcadian vanguard youtube channel where our early programs live in in various forms i said besides all of the other obvious problems this guy's a fucking blabbermouth he's a know-it-all he's a fucking bullshit artist and he's gonna want to tell everybody what he fucking knows much and now we find out much less hoarding this shit to fucking sell it to a foreign country, which I'm sure could have been possible down the road. He's just saving it to show to his fucking golf club friends. Hey, Arnold Palmer, come on, look here. Here's how we're going to bomb fucking Russia. He's using it as something to brag about and make himself look cool to have. Look what I have. Hey, I just happen to have this over here in these 55 boxes on the stage. Yes. <laughs> that I have the other guy that's been indicted along with me moving from room to room. And they have him, that one of the attorneys that did, before the this attorney, these are these latest attorneys that quit. Attorney one, I think he's referred to in the complaint, spilled his guts when he found, what the fuck are we doing here? I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life. This is goddamn ridiculous. I'm not part of this. He held his hands up. They said, spill your guts. He said, yeah. He said, well, shouldn't we just tell them we don't have anything? It's a goddamn three U-Haul trucks worth of shit. And the fucking, his valet who was also indicted has spent half his time moving this shit from one, it was in a bathroom. It was in a storage room. It was in a ballroom. It was a goddamn, it, who knows? It could have been under his, under Donald Trump's fucking bed. Melania, even they've got a text from Melania saying, we don't have room on the plane. We're going to Jersey for all of his boxes. He was carrying this shit around with him. What about her emails? Lock her up. Fuck you. This motherfucker has finally, in the Inspector Clouseau of criminal activity, the bumbling, befucking foon, 
of all the crimes he's committed and the bad things he's done and the way that he has fucking pretty much ruined this goddamn country, at least for the next generation, till everybody who ever listened to his pig fucking lips is dead. The thing that brought him dead, it couldn't even be something cool like Al Capone got popped for income tax evasion. It's just, he's a blithering fucking idiot that wanted to brag about, look when I was president, look at what all the shit that I did to every Tom's dick is Harry that walked through Mar-a-Lago. And Bedminster. And Bedminster, because he was, yes, I forgot, he was bi-coastal. So... I like They'll, the picture of them on the stage. It's almost like a little show of the files. <laughs> and repeated attempts by everybody, the fucking National Archives, the Justice Department, the, the pe- all the people that were requested, just give us this shit back. We know you have shit. What the fuck is the matter with you? These were plans. And again, they talked about Hillary Clinton's emails. Or Joe Biden took a fucking folder home in his briefcase. This was goddamn like two or three U-Haul trucks full of bank boxes of file after file after file. And in there were nuclear secrets and potential attack plans or the uh, the, uh, retaliation plans just in case that there's an attack or all this other shit that most people don't need to know what's going on with that stuff. And it's sitting, he's got fucking waiters from his goddamn snack bar at his golf club or hole 19 or whatever they call it, carrying this shit around in between shifts. And it wouldn't be right. However, if there was at least an argument of, I built a billionaire bunker no one could get access to, (laughs) then it'd be something as opposed to, they're in Mar-a-Lago where we've had invaders. It's not Fort Knox. It's a place on the beach. It's a fucking golf club. And they, they again, they actually, who was the goddamn Russian agent, the woman that was at one of the Mar-a-Lago functions several years ago and come to find out she had ties to, well, he's got his own ties to Russia. I suppose his buddy Vladimir doesn't have to send any underlings, but nevertheless, they're going to have to put him in solitary, Brian. Because you know that once that he goes to prison, Everybody wants to go down in history as the person who did whatever they might want to do to Donald Trump. So he'll be in a, hopefully a six by eight, maybe a four by six. Keep him standing up or sitting on a John. Four by six cell all by his little lonesome for the rest of his meager existence, which won't be long enough to pay back for all the damage he did to the country. What they ought to do is is they ought to put him under the jail, as Teeny Jarrett and Mama Cornette used to say. But at least they can stick him off in a closet somewhere. And maybe they could charge... You know what? This could balance the national debt. Put Donald Trump in a fucking jail cell with a glass partition like that Twilight Zone episode with Roddy McDowell and let everybody come and pay $10 a piece just to look at him and maybe throw peanuts. You could erase the national debt in a year and a half. I will buy the first hundred tickets. All kidding aside, 
when you see this indictment and you see what experts on both sides are saying and you see the evidence, there's no way he doesn't go to jail for this, is there? There can't be. There can't be. They've got him on tape saying, yes, I did this. And people telling his lawyers to lie. And telling his lawyers to lie. And people testifying that he said these things to them and photographic evidence of what they got at the fucking crime scene. And I, I know it, it's, it may be difficult for all of the suckers and the rubes that thought in some way, shape, or form that this real estate fraud, this reality television con man, this grifter, this charlatan, this fucking repugnant, assholish, ignorant, intellectually incurious excuse for a fucking human being somehow had something on the fucking ball. And we've been saying for years now, well, they're going to find out eventually all the fucking shit that we've been saying he was doing all along. And they found most of it out. And at some point, and they're still fine, he's still got to go to Georgia. The devil still got to go down to Georgia and answer for that. This is only one of the different things he's exposed to right now. There's Georgia, there's the indictment that already exists in New York. There's who knows how much more. So, I mean, again, at some point... And he's on tape in several of them. They will... I mean, there'll still be people that when they see the videotape of him fucking the pig, they will still not believe it. But for most normal human beings, one would think that at some point you have to come to the sharp realization that, yeah, they were right all along about this fucking moron that I thought should be president of the United States. But anyway, the world is a couple of steps safer and uh, he's a couple steps closer to the fucking crossbar hotel, as, as Cowboy Bill Watts might have once said. And for all future presidents, there should be some kind of safeguard, no matter what party they're with. How the fuck are you just walking out of the White House with this stuff? Yeah, it, th this is not like this was something you could have stuck in your briefcase right. and made off with. That's or, right. It, boy, he slipped it under his raincoat when we weren't looking. What the fuck? This had to be trucks. And he was just, he would, he's been a criminal his entire life, but nobody gave a fuck. And it was even cute when he was on television and wasn't responsible for anything important in people's lives, except for the individual companies that over the end people that over the years he cheated out of money and fucked with. But for the general population, he was a fucking entertaining distraction being a pig headed piece of shit. But once that enough people were so stupid, and so mad the black guy won, did a great job, and was smarter than everybody else, that they had to fucking retaliate in the form of, let's elect the fucking asshole that sounds just like us, and we don't have any business being president either. And that's how we arrived at this situation that we're still not going to get out of for another 20 years until all these militia fucks, right-wing weirdos, evangelical fuckwits, and goddamn proud boy nitwits die off of old age or get sentenced to fucking prison for whatever it is that they've done. Because they'll, if they haven't done it, they will do it.
That's what he fucking made normal. So thank you very much, you repugnant piece of shit. I hope you wither away and rot a painful death in a prison cell, staring out the window with the only fucking ray of sunshine that you've seen in the last seven days, and a pigeon shits in your fucking eye. And we're back on YouTube. <laughs> and by the way, a programming note, the Dark Side of the Ring Season 4 episodes <laughs> continue on this week, this Tuesday, June the 13th, the Graham family. Eddie and Mike Graham, uh, specifically, it's centered on, and the not only the dynasty that Eddie Graham built in Florida, but also the unfortunate trend of suicide in his family. And as well, there's some talk of Dr. Jerry Graham and, and Eddie's roots and the name of the Graham family in general. That's Vice TV at 10 o'clock Eastern time on Tuesday, June 13th is the, the debut of that episode. Have you seen... Uh, did, did we even talk about this? I forget. I talked to you so much. Have you seen the Candido and Magnum episodes yet? I did. We talked about the Magnum one, and I just saw the Candido one because I missed it the first time around. It took me a while to finally see it. What did you think? You, were, you may even have been at some of the shows that there was footage of him in his younger days. I knew Chris. I knew Chris. I first met him at the Arezzi convention in 93. Well, I know. That's why I was saying I thought you were probably in the... Were you actually on screen in any of that, or were you no. carefully hidden? I was carefully hidden, I guess. But it, back to your story. No, I wasn't in any of the clips on there, but you know, I was around during a lot of that period of time. I lost touch with Chris right around the time he got really heavily into ECW. Um... <laughs> you see, you said you said that you phrased it in such a you could have substituted ECW for like heroin or whatever. And it well, would, no, would you know worked. what it was. I mean, because again, I recognize Dark Side because only tells so much of the story in the time constraints they had. They didn't interview Tammy. There was a lot of Tammy, but they tried to keep the focus on Chris. But you know, they're they're so intertwined, and there was a lot of Tammy, and there was a lot of stuff left out. But Chris, you know, part of the big Chris story that people don't talk about so much anymore but chris was like dennis carluzzo's number one guy like yeah. dennis treated chris like a son put his world championship on him he was all for chris working for you he wanted you to hire he wanted chris to get a break yeah they were very close the nwa tournament november 94 cherry hill smoky mountain guys are there obviously chris wins the nwa title that was because of dennis and when Chris went to ECW, it's not as simple as just he went to ECW and that was it, but Chris himself was going through shit and changing, and him and Dennis, the relationship just dissolved. I don't even think there was a big fight or anything. It was just Chris was part of a new group of people, and he no longer kept up with Dennis. And that's right around a period of time, coincidentally enough, where I kind of stopped keeping up with Chris. Well, and also Chris was, he was so focused at, on, uh, this is where I'm going to be now. I got to make it, you know, the best thing I can be and, or the best thing it can be. And that's when we talked about it or referred to it in the, in the show, but Paul had convinced that Chris that he was his assistant something or other. I don't know if he gave him an official title, but here, Chris, you handled this for me. And that's why he had charged all those plane tickets, all that travel to his personal credit card, because then Paul would reimburse him in cash. I don't know what the ECW accounting methods were, but 
an independent contractor working for me uses his personal credit card to buy plane tickets for all the boys. And at some point later on, after he's run up a big tab, I hand him a big wad of cash. That sounds perfectly legitimate. But nevertheless, you know, that story you always talk about, you know, the famous night where you make your loan appearance in ECW and you're in the limo with Dennis and it's Chris and Paul, you and Chris put together that deal. So much of the focus is about Paul and Dennis, but really that's right around the period of time where Dennis and Chris stopped talking. So there's that whole dynamic too, because yeah. they were as close as you could be and now they weren't. And and that was the thing is that Chris thought, okay, I'm going to be in the office and and we're I'm, I get to wrestle and I can do this for Paul and maybe I can I've seen guys, you know, be all excited about being part of something to the point where they were blind to the fact that they were putting themselves out on a limb and eventually, Paul didn't come through with the wad of cash. Chris had the big credit card bill and he and Tammy had bought a house, and he told me this himself what a year or two later. And they lost the house because they couldn't pay because their fucking credit got shot and they owed all the money and a blah, blah, blah. So that at that point, he was just, you know, thinking, I'm going to do whatever I can do for ECW and because this is, you know, my chance to, to be, Paul will use me, which, of course, he did. I'm not saying he didn't. But he also he used him on the cards and he used him in, on off the cards also. But anyway, that was the episode. Yeah, so I, mean, so I mean, there's a lot more to it. You know, even the whole Chris and Tammy dynamic. As someone who was around it for a little bit, briefly, and again, I talked to Chris, but Tammy was around. So, and she was always cool with me, to be very honest. I know everyone has a Tammy horror story, maybe because I was kind of close in age to her. She wasn't that much older than me. She was cool with me. But, you know, everyone focuses on the Sean stuff. There were other things before then, too, and after then, and, you know, not to go too deep yeah. into this, everyone's always like, why did Chris put up with it? Well, I've always wondered if maybe Chris didn't mind, and I hate to put it that way, but I know other wrestlers that had incidents where Tammy, they say, Tammy threw herself at them when Chris was in the shower. I've heard that story from more than one person, and... You know, if it happens more than once, it makes you almost feel like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm saying, but there's, everyone focuses on, okay, Sean was the thing, and then that kind of changed the dynamic in the relationship. I mean, there were other things before then. There I've, were other things. At, at some points, I've almost thought she was trying to run him off. And huh. not, you Interesting. know. Interesting, huh. it, At some because it wasn't just, you know, she could also be snippy. And there and there were points in time where they were they were together because they'd always been together, but they weren't necessarily romantic, is is the way that it was phrased to me. But it you know, it just it was he was obviously more devoted to her than she was to him. Yes. But at the same time, I think she knew that for a while there she couldn't have even gotten involved in this and and gotten into it at any level without him if that makes any sense also not only after she got in but also he was a big how could you not be around chris if you were or, or not learn around about the wrestling business being around chris 
He was obsessed with it. So that's why she was, in addition to her natural heelishness, she got good from scratch because she'd been around him. If, if you know, half the people on television today, if they could ride in a car with Chris Candido, they'd probably learn more about the wrestling business than they know. Anyway, but that's so once again, catch them while they're hot and get them while they're still on the air. Vice TV, we don't know what's going on with Vice, but our friends at Dark Side, they've got the programs. They're, they're going to ride that horse to the bitter end. Are they creditors? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that they've, they're on a barter system. They've <laughs> not really any money changing hands. <laughs> no, I, I believe they've been paid, uh, paid so far. Well, they're on the air. So anyway. <laughs> Those aren't the same thing, but okay. Speaking of LSE, look here, we, we're on the air. <laughs> and where are we? I'll tell you who I'm paying. I am paying some people some money. This I'm paying some people some bread, as Joe LaDuke said one time. The cancer fundraiser continued at jimcornett.com for Cornette's collectibles with the breast cancer action figure, my pink jacket and black accessories. Uh, we mentioned in April it was $6,900 to the American Cancer Society because we sold 690 figures. $10 off each figure goes to fight cancer and i told you may we slowed down of course the kids got out of school and everybody's going on vacation but we still sold 75 figures and raised 750 dollars. we got a couple of hundred left so jump in folks over the summer but where is it i wanted to read this email because instead of the american cancer society this month i had brian you mentioned this and 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 we took a poll, and it seemed like American Cancer Society was the most popular, popular. But also, we got this email, and I looked through my stack again and saw this, and I wanted to read a bit of it. She, Melissa writes, please allow me to put in my voice in favor of City of Hope. My wife has been a dedicated wrestling fan since 1984 when she was taken to a show and Road Warrior Hawk picked her tiny child body up for the crowd from the crowd and so well for the crowd look yeah, what? child for you <laughs> i sold for you <laughs> it had picked her child body up from the crowd and said what a rush this past december she started to experience some difficulty moving one morning she had a seizure out of nowhere a 911 call an ambulance ride and multiple scans later it was determined that she had stage four lung cancer oh that had metastasized to her brain and uh, Melissa goes on, they spent a week together in the hospital for an operation. She was able to keep her laughing and smiling by playing the Cornette archives, including the Vince McMahon omnibus. Uh, but Melissa says she is now in the care of City of Hope, who have treated her incredibly well. There's no trace of cancer remaining in her brain. Someone's always there 24-7 to answer the phone and hold our hands through this journey. And at 2 in the morning when she's having... Scary side effects, I can reach out and get guidance immediately. The doctors, nurses, and staff are unfailingly kind. Um, so anyway, she finishes, if you read this out loud, please tell Jessica that she'll beat the living shit out of cancer and I will always be at her side to sneak her the kendo stick. So I've, whoops, and I've dropped that as it floats down to the ground. 
but I have decided, okay, now we're going to do the rest of it for the city of hope. That way everybody gets what they asked for. Oh, that's tremendous. Including Brian, you, and, and there were several other emails. That was one of the more touching ones, but there were several other in, in favor of the city of hope. So that's what we're going to do as we ride this action figure off into the sunset. The last couple of hundred also. And I will have... Um, you know, I, I haven't had Hotchkiss over the past couple of days to do his invention. The, what is it? The, the screenshot. Not his invention. So, well, and listen, I've spent a lot of money with Gwen to trademark that thing. <laughs> so he seemed surprised. He was shocked, as a matter of fact, that somebody had invented something like that. When he looked at it, he said, I don't believe you're telling me this. Why am I not surprised <laughs> that he's shocked by that? But anyway, but we'll, we'll do that. Here upcoming, but that's what's going to happen. And also, if you want to go right now to jimcornett.com, in addition to a couple of hundred of the breast cancer action figures remaining, we also have the fine Inside the Ropes magazine, the DVD with myself and JR at our Inside the Ropes event in London back in 2016, Cult of Cornette membership certificates, Behind the Curtain graphic novels, the most popular T-shirts in town, including the incredible lazy booking shirt. You're going to need that for pretty much any wrestling program you go to these days. Uh, all that and more at jimcornett.com. The feather bottoms are on the case. You don't have to wait for nothing. All right. Do you feel with so much lazy booking actually happening on TV each and every week that you're losing control of lazy booking? No, I think it's magnifying the need for people to wear that proudly on their chest so that they can differentiate themselves from the regular old hoi polloi and the plebeians out there, as the brain would say, they can differentiate themselves as the, the smart crowd. Instead of the smart fan, they're the smart crowd, the smart cult, the cult of cornet. You see how this all fits together? Somewhat, yes. If you don't want to wear a beret, a sash, a saber, and color-coordinated shoes, then you got to wear a lazy-booking T-shirt. Where did... Do we still have that picture of the fellow with the sash and the... He was going to work on the beret because it looked more like a chef's hat. I believe he's now gone to more than one show, so we do have some photos. Well, we got to see how that outfit progresses. I understand it's spreading like wildfire. I mean, it's cool now. Wendley actually captures one of these guys. That's because they do have detention power, right? Well, tell all me. Of the, all of the Cult of Cornet Fan Fest watchers? They have detention power. We have not established this firmly on the air. How does that if work? They, if they see someone behaving in a manner detrimental to the honor and good name of professional wrestling, they're allowed to detain them for a period of up to two hours, possibly in a small cage or a closet somewhere or a janitor's area. Um, in, until they promise to modify their behavior. It's detention power. Just up to two hours, though. Not like a real peace officer. What if it's an AEW pay-per-view that goes like five hours? Well, goddamn, a Cornet Fan Fest watcher wouldn't be at an AEW pay-per-view anyway, would they? Well, they could work in shifts. They can. Well, no, that, that, would be like, that would be like sending Custer after the Indians. We'd have to mount a... Because that's right where they all are. So we'd have to mount a significant force. I'm talking about out in the wild, the regular non-AEW-affiliated fan fest. We need to keep order out there, but let the underneath dwellers, the, the chuds, let them have their own area there. 
didn't want anybody to get hurt. Do you think General Custer ever had custard? Custer's Custard. It was a brand in the 1890s all through Kansas, Nebraska, oh, really? and Montana. Yes. I didn't know that. Wow. And well, the problem was there was no refrigeration back in those days. <laughs> so pretty much right. about, about an hour and a half, two hours after you you had, had any Custer's Custard, you, you were cussing Custer because of what the custard mustered up. <laughs> We never talked about this era. Talk a little bit more about your childhood in the 1890s. Would you quit? <laughs> I'll have you. They had invented refrigeration by the time I was a child. <laughs> and thank goodness, because, you know, for milk, my mother never breastfed me. She said she liked me as a friend. <laughs> but, and I've got this email. <laughs> <laughs> There's another topic that we've been talking about recently, this AEW Take Forever video game. And we were surmising and proposing of the, how the fuck are they going to make any money with this thing when they've supposedly spent tens of millions of dollars on it. It's going to cost $60. Um, if every one of the 900,000 people that watch their television program on Wednesday nights, bought it at retail price. It would gross X. What are these splits? We've talked about this. Well, we obviously were just pulling thoughts and concepts out of our ass because we have not worked in this field. But we did say that if there were anybody, because there's, there's smart people in the cult of Cornette. We're going to highlight a bunch of them today. Smart people all over. People that know things. And we invited them to let us know what they thought. So we got an email from Eddie, last name redacted. He is a former employee of Take-Two Interactive, uh, which we'll explain That's more about. That's a big company. That's a big company. Well, I'd never heard of him, but I'm not, not looking for video games right now. But I'll, it, it has more about it here in a second. But he's a video game professional. And he says, hi, Jim and Brian, and sorry for the long email, so please feel free to edit around this, but this, these are facts, facts and truth. We're, we're going to blurt the whole thing out. Please bear with me while I explain a properly funded sports video game licensing agreement and production. Take-Two Interactive, the publishing company, and its in-house development studio 2K Games pays the NBA $1.1 billion over seven years, or and I, it should be, uh, is paying, they're currently paying it, $1.1 billion over seven years since 2019 to develop basketball video games with the NBA license on it. The $1.1 billion is a combination of an upfront fee plus a percentage of the sales of every video game sold. Take-Two 2K Games takes the gamble that this $1.1 billion will pay off because their basketball games have the official NBA license on it, along with all the official teams and player likenesses and names. This is only the licensing costs. The rest of the video game production costs are borne by Take-Two and 2K, and they have to find the finances to cover the staff costs, development and design costs, marketing, advertising, etc. This may sound like crazy economies, but Take-Two Interactive sold total 2022 revenues 
were $3.5 billion with approximately 15% of that coming from the sales of the NBA 2K video games. So they gross $3.5 billion a year and over $400 million of that came from the NBA that they're paying $1.1 billion over seven years. That's what I was going to ask you. Over how many years was it? Yes. So if they're one, let's say one billion divide by seven is what? Like, goddamn, uh, I can't do that math in my head. 12, 13 billion, something like that. 157 million a year. Obviously, I was close. Okay, but they, they got over 400 million. So they doubled their money back, even at that rate. Anyway, he goes on to say, a similar agreement exists between Take-Two 2K and the WWE. Although it is not publicly disclosed anywhere how much the licensing agreement is overall, however, the WWE publicly says it made $134 million in 2022 from licensing agreements, which include the 2K video games. Now, on to AEW Fight Forever. This is not made by Take-Two Interactive 2K Games. It is made by a far smaller studio called Ukes, and its publisher is a separate company called THQ Nordics. And apparently both of these companies used to make WWE games years ago. Do you know anything about this? I know the companies, and I've played some of their games, but I don't know too much about the history. I'm not a big fan of the wrestling video games since, like, the mid-90s, to be honest, so I'm not someone who could really opine on the uh, quality of the games or anything. Well, then don't opine. Just sit there and play opossum. From all the turmoil and news stories, it sounds like Tony Khan may have been giving money to Ukes and THQ out of his own pocket to make the video game. That's apparently what that sounds like, right? When they say they've invested... Tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, that's what that would be. I mean, if it's going into the production of the game and they're producing the game, that's where you would think it was going. Okay, a small studio and publisher like Ukes and THQ would struggle to find the $40 million themselves from outside investors. They would have had to shut down production a long time ago unless Tony kept plowing money into the development of this video game. This is only my speculation, so take it with a pinch of salt. Also bear in mind that the $40 million does not seem to include the cost of advertising and marketing, so add a couple more million on top, because obviously they haven't really advertised it yet because it hadn't been on sale until just recently. The past three years, they've been, it's coming, it's coming, but they haven't actively advertised it. Brian was also right in saying it's an approximately 70-30 split between THQ and the digital download store Sony or Microsoft or buying a physical disc from Amazon, Target, Walmart, etc. Anyway, he, he breaks down, if they sell 900,000 that we were talking about as 900,000 viewers, then the maximum revenue would be 37.8 million, which would be 70% of the 54 million, right? And this assumes everyone buys the game at full price and not in a sale or bargain bin discount. THQ would then have to give a cut to Ukes for the development and a cut back to Tony for loaning them all the money. Where's the $54 million number come from? I know we've heard rumors of different things, but well, is there a firm number? No, that's what we were saying. If, if that's the math, if they sell 900000 of okay. it, 60 bucks. Okay. 
but it, and that's because we're pulling all this out of our ass, but it wouldn't just be as simple as saying, okay, we sell $900,000 or 900,000 games. We make our money back because there's these other splits. And if Tony has put in that much money, then it's going to take them some time and some effort to, they might get the money back, but to make a profit will be even longer. But there you have an interactive employee, an interactive employee. Are your employees interactive, Brian? In a sense. You know, when I, when I was a WWE employee for a WWF employee for a couple weeks there, and they made me an official employee, I was told by the human resources people that we, our employees were not allowed to be interactive. That was off limits. Anyway. Unless you're EVP or higher. Oh, he was higher, all right. Should we go now to Reggie's Corner? Do you have any theme music for Reggie's Corner? I don't. You didn't tell me to have theme music ready for this. Well, I thought you just had something right there at the uh, at the push of a button that could meow and bark at us. You know what? We got to get... With the kid, when I was a kid, you'd see the cartoon of the dogs barking some tune from the 40s in the cartoons. Maybe that could be the theme for Reggie's Corner. Just any old tune from the 40s? Well, I can't remember exactly what it was. Or maybe just the saber dance. I just woke Harley up. I'm sorry. Anyway, we come now to Reggie's Corner. Please bear with me here. Because we want to give this the attention it deserves and I've, the top of the stack is my and, and also i've gone through a bunch of emails folks and we've been getting more than ever so oh there they come they're coming in now every everyone gather please take a seat any pew right, let me stop <laughs> just any pew that's open just take a seat come on in uh my friend joe musoff wrote and unfortunately says my family unexpectedly lost our cat Polly on June 3rd due to kidney failure. Uh, Polly was a purebred Siamese cat. Apparently Joe's grandparents Siamese cats had a litter 14 years ago and that's when he adopted Polly and her brother Jack. And he says Polly was kind of dumb and had a short attention span but she was also really sweet and friendly unlike her brother Jack who's a real prick and a complete moron. But he says she'll be greatly missed by our family. Even though her brother Jack may be a prick, I do feel bad for him too since he lost his sister and is now the sole cat left in the house. So, Joe, we're sorry to hear that. And there were pictures of Polly and... And the prick. And the prick. <laughs> Called him a prick um, twice in that email. <laughs> that cat must have some heat. Uh, you know, cats can piss you off. Oh, yeah. That's they why I don't do have, have any that around. talent. Yeah. Every once in a while, you can find a nice one. They condescend. Um, and like like Leanne from Texas, she lost her eight-year-old cat, Abby. And unfortunately, I, I don't think she doesn't say exactly what the problem was. But, uh, well, no. I'm sorry. She was not eight. She had her for eight years. She had wandered by. And she picked her up as a stray. So she assumed she was between 10 and 15 years old. Oh. Apparently, Abby died of a broken heart. She uh, was afraid of getting sued and signed over all of her assets to her spouse and then lost all access to the money that 
Abby had earned a Japan for many years. <laughs> you gotta be disrespectful <laughs> to Abby the cat and Abdullah the butcher both in the same swell, swell foop. I didn't say anything about Abdullah the butcher. You're just your mind just went there based on what I said, which is pretty telling. Moving on to Rob in Tyler, Texas. And this one pissed me off because the Tuesday after Memorial Day says my family lost our baby Moolah May. We had had her for only a few years, but she provided countless hours of emotional support, comfort, playtime, and snuggles. And he says she was hit by a car in front of my wife and I, and the son of a bitch didn't even stop. Oh, that sucks. And boy, I tell you what. That's awful. Rob, if you got a license number. And you either need a defense fund or you'd like somebody to help you dispose of a body. Then you can contact me through the corny email and then we'll go somewhere on the dark web. But that's ridiculous. But <laughs> maybe you got Hotchkiss help you get on the dark web. Well, you know what? He got on the dark web the other day. But the thing was, it was just a complete black screen. I couldn't see anything. Because and so the cat's name was Moolah May. Moolah May. Well, no, that was a dog. That was a dog. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is he going to replace her with uh, June Burke? Uh, I think uh, probably uh, Cora Combs Stewart. But anyway, uh, Chris in Omaha, uh, he wrote that we had no warning that our beloved eight-year-old greyhound, Charlie, not from Starkville, would break his left hind leg and x-ray showed advanced bone cancer. It's a fairly common malady for greyhounds. That's a, that's a shame. I never knew that. Uh, Charlie was a champion with over 180 races. His enthusiasm for walks and romping in the yard seemed limitless. Charlie was like Ric Flair, always ready to walk that aisle and strut his stuff. But um, Charlie owed all the other animals in the neighborhood money. And also, he did like to stand up on his hind legs and open his trench coat <laughs> and, and flash the other greyhounds. Charlie's not allowed to fly anymore. <laughs> he, he could only take a helicopter to his races. <laughs> Moving on. Um, my name is Scott from Innismore, Ontario, Canada. Innismore is, in in is right down the road from Innermore. Uh, but uh, on a more fucking serious note, Scott says, we recently lost our beloved Stella. She was a cream-colored standard poodle, and Stella was a lot of work and was very anxious about just about everything, but she was a loyal companion, loved to play ball, and was a huge part of our family home. And though Stella is now at peace, she remains loved and very much missed. And Scott just wanted to, and again, the pictures are so cute, have Stella recognized on Reggie's corner. And finally, we got to end up with another one of our furry species friends, not the dogs or the cats, but David in Las Vegas. What species is that? Well, no, I mean, he's writing about a different species than a dog or a cat is what he's doing. He's a, he's our species. He's a homo. Sapien. Uh, sapien. Well, I couldn't remember whether it was homo sapien or homo erogenous. It's, but anyway, it's sapien. 
It's Sapien. All right. David from Las Vegas writes, Dear Jim, I have some disturbing news to share and ask that you beg my indulgence. Sadly, my pet gerbil, Mr. Wiggles, passed away unexpectedly. Mr. Wiggles? As a practitioner of celibate spiritualism, what? I attempted to protect Mr. Wiggles from being stolen and or abused during Pride Month. But long story short, I squeezed Mr. Wiggles into a toilet paper tube and attempted to hide him from in injury by inserting him up my anal sphincter. Oh, come on. What is this? And sadly, Mr. Wiggles suffocated to death. How is this in Reggie's corner? Well, no, because, no, see, I thought like you did. I was about to call bullshit. But then he says, Jim, I've enclosed a photo of Mr. Wiggles for your edification. I would appreciate your warm, soothing words of encouragement during this time of personal turmoil and emotional distress. Sincerely, David S. from Las Vegas. It might be Dave Sahadi. Did he move out there? And let me just clarify. I go with my original thought. David S. may not be part of my species. <laughs> well, no, because doing. he sent a picture and he enclosed the picture. And there is a picture of Mr. Wiggles in the toilet paper tube. It, laying in in the palm of a hand that uh, obviously must be David's of Las Vegas's. See, the sad thing is, it's either David of Las Vegas doing this filthy act or taking this photo, or he went on the internet and searched for gerbil in toilet paper dispenser photos and found this. Well, you're trying to call his veracity into question. It's what you're doing here. Saying this is a fake photo of well, a gerbil in a tube. I'm not saying that. I'm calling his mentality into question. I'm thinking you're shitting all over the memory of Mr. Wiggles. I'm thinking he's shitting all over Mr. Wiggles. Well, Mr. Wiggles is an innocent victim in all this. He didn't ask to be crammed anywhere. He, he might have been perfectly fine. He could have lasted all through Pride Month and come out unscathed, but instead, in an effort to protect him, he was an innocent victim of a charitable act, and he was he was smothered by the lower colon of David S. of Las Vegas. Hey, Swami's upset about this. Well, well, how does Swami feel about gerbils? He's not a fan of gerbils. Well, then he ought to be celebrating that Mr. Wiggles is gone. David S. What a weirdo. Speaking of, well, speaking of wiggling out of things, <laughs> we got another email. And this was that uh, the end of Reggie's corner. That's the end of Reggie's corner. I'm sorry, I should have called it. <laughs> are we officially done with? We Reggie's are officially corner? done with Reggie's corner. We will return next week with more uh, bad taste segments. <laughs> oh come on now! <laughs> uh, once again, speaking of wiggling out of things, Mister Wiggles, bad taste segments. However, you want to categorize this next one we got another email i told you the cult is speaking today and they've got some great information coming up also but this one is from simon his last name will be redacted uh because of what you're about to hear and once again folks this is a, a listener's statement here one of the cult of cornet members this is what he's testifying to we weren't there it wasn't us Hello, Jim and Brian. I've been sitting on this for a while and have debated emailing you for a variety of reasons. 
I attended a Chris Jericho meet and greet Q&A event with Inside the Ropes last year in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where I live. I'm so sorry about going to that, man. Hopefully we can make it up to you and there'll be a better thing coming to town soon. Come on now. Hey, Kenny McIntosh is a wonderful entertainer. I wasn't talking I, about him. I can't, I can't vouch for any kind of help or support he had on stage. No. Uh, this was apparently in July of 2022. The event itself was enjoyable and Chris Jericho was very welcoming to everyone and the talk was engaging. It was a great night and all the fans left happy. I found out a few days after this that the same could not be said for the hotel staff where Chris Jericho was staying overnight before moving on to the next UK tour date. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and... Hey, Derek! Well, we have, we've heard a lot of from Chris Jericho himself of the problems he has with goods and services when he's on the road with the hotels, the concierges, the bellhops, the valets, the peripheral people, right? So Simon goes on, a good friend who is a police officer in the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland, contacted me and showed me body cam footage of a drunken, aggressive, and flexing man in the corridor of a local hotel in Belfast. Flexing? The man in question was Chris Jericho. <laughs> Police were called after reports of loud music, aggression towards hotel staff, and, I love the way they talk over there, general disturbing of the peace coming from the hotel room he was staying in and my friend was one of the officers to respond. My friend, who shall remain nameless for obvious reasons, parenthetically so he doesn't get fired, recognized Jericho and attempted to talk him down and calm the situation. Jericho raised his arms and flexed to show his dominance to the officers and stated, Don't what you know who I am? Oh my God. And similar phrases one would expect from an inebriated individual. He was then arrested by the officers. I believe he was released when he sobered up a few hours later, but this tickled me to no end. Given his recent tweets and verbal attacks on many different hotels and hotel staff, I thought I would give an insight into what could be happening to precipitate said manic tweets. Now, wow. It did for what hold before we get into this. $10,000 for that body cam footage. I was about to say, can you? how do you show that? Police officers out there in the cult. Is this a possible thing? Is this a disqualifier? Can you show body cam footage if you're an officer to people, or is it just beamed back to the goddamn government office or whatever? I don't know how that works. But that if, if it is then the case in Northern Ireland that uh, the cops can just show their body cam footage. That is, well, that's just swell. And I remember Jericho tweeting at some point a while back that he got kicked out of a hotel unreasonably and was tweeting, I thought it was, hey, Hilton, or hey, this or that. Hey, Derek. Hey, Derek. I'm wandering around because you didn't have my room or you ejected me from my room or... Because this happens so much, which could this could we be conflating that with another incident? Is this a heretofore unreported situation? We recently talked about several, which were hotels and airport staff that he just decided to go and try to 
get a Twitter mob against. I mean, just bizarre stuff. I don't know about this specific one. I remember there was also a hotel incident. Wasn't there something where MVP wanted to kick his ass in a hotel? Oh, that, no, that was completely different. He, that was in no, a hotel. This was, but it was in a well, hotel. Well, that was in a hotel. This but guy can't be in a hotel than, without causing problems. That's he was point. also tweeting about not only a hotel not having the rooms that he paid for, but at some point he got he was tweeting about being ejected from a hotel. I know somebody's got to be able to do that research. I I need to stop this and talk to you because I can't wrap my head. The flexing, how does this work? <laughs> is he flexing while he talks? Or is he done like ranting drunkenly, obviously, based on his story, and the cops start talking and then he goes into flexes? Is it the classic Hogan style flex? I, I think he flexes first. According to the the play-by-play -play here, Jericho raised his arms and flexed to show his dominance and stated. So then he stated, don't you know who I am? Now, if he did a double bicep and said, don't you know who I am, people might have thought that he was, you know, some kid trying to, well, some kid, some 50-year-old man trying to act like Hulk Hogan. Are you Vince Neil? But if he did that that weird kind of, flex thing that he does that you know when he's in the ring to act like a heel at the hard camera maybe that was supposed to be what would tip the people off that it was chris jericho does he have a, a trademark flex do you know who i am yeah you're arrested yeah <laughs> that's who you are <laughs> what kind of what kind of bird don't fly as they used to say in the territories you know i don't know where or when but we've heard other stories about him in hotels and loud music and maybe not necessarily being kind to the staff when they're trying to do their job. And, and now here we have another story. This one apparently has supporting footage, <laughs> which I'm he's dying the, to see. He's the Donald Trump of hotel disturbers. <laughs> when he does it, there's footage and everything. Serious question. If you are someone who's booking wrestlers to come to, for whatever reason, to work for you, to do appearances, whatever it may be. If you fear they're going to be a problem in a hotel based on their own track record, do you think twice before you do it? Because at some point, this <sighs> headache's going to hit the person that brings them over. Yeah, well, or over or down or up. It can be domestic also. The other day, right. I think, hey, Derek was, you know, he was in fucking Butte, Montana or wherever. But the point is, it was the same thing back in the territory days to a lesser extent because then the promoter obviously didn't pay for guys' hotels unless you're bringing the world champion in or the Sheik is coming to do business with Mike LaBelle in Los Angeles or whatever. Guys paid for their own hotels, but the promotions a lot of times in regular towns would have a deal where the guys got a rate at a particular hotel. The heels would be at this hotel. The baby faces would be at that hotel. They'd have their own dedicated group of girls to come and et cetera. So they wouldn't be socializing, but you could get a better rate than if guys just wandered in. But as guys usually would, they would fuck up some kind of way. They'd trash a hotel room or they'd cause some kind of scene. And the, because of one or two guys, the hotel would cancel the fucking rate. And then they'd have to find a new place to go. And that's a Bill Watts would keep back, as everybody's talked about, your last two weeks' paycheck because he wanted to make sure when a guy's left the territory 
they didn't leave the hotel stuck for a bill or they didn't, you know, leave anything unpaid that he might hear about during that time. And, and Grizzly's ears were everywhere. Now, in the modern days, when either the independents, if they're bringing a star in, they pay for their room, or if, uh, you know, they're goddamn AEW or WWE, they're, well, WWE doesn't, but AEW, apparently, according to what Tony Khan says, he pays for the first class hotel accommodations. If you fuck something up there, you're costing a ton of people a ton of problems, and you're costing Tony a lot of money. Because it it's not like, you know, the guy cost himself a, or just the boys a fucking good rate at a hotel they like to stay at. It's a big fucking deal, and and the promotion is is on the hook for multiple times more rooms than it was in the old days. So, yeah, if I mean, my God, we're all grumpy when we're traveling, but is is this a pad? I, me, the worst traveler in recorded history. Do not have as much trouble on the road with various people as Chris Jericho does that he just reports himself on Twitter. I don't know how this is happening to a man with his cachet in the industry and standing in the community. I would probably, you know, if I had to guess, say overinflated ego and alcohol mixed together. That could with be. With bad or, music. Whereas with me, it's just crankiness and cholesterol. Flexing? How is he flexing? Like, what is he? Like, when and how? Is it when he's talking? He's like, like angrily talking, so he's flexing, or like, does he stop and like, like hit the double bicep? <laughs> is he going into the whole Luger thing? Like, what is he doing? And he doesn't have the physique for that. Why is he flexing? Well, he looks big in those leather jackets. Is he wearing a shirt when they arrest him? Uh, does it say shirt? It doesn't say shirtless. I don't think because then does he's it? flexing in a. At least a shirt. I mean, unless he's wearing well, a vest. Who knows? It could have been, you know, because it was probably late at night. These things usually happen. Late that night. Did you ever have a single problem with Chris Jericho when he worked for you in terms of being rude to the staff at any place or other than Dairy Queen? Any incidents? No. no just, um, you know, like I said, he, he ran off all the girls, but he wasn't particularly rude to any people that he met in a professional capacity along the way, but he hadn't, he hadn't got there yet. He wasn't a megastar at that point. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a story about Chris Jericho coming to your hotel, please get in touch with us, cornydrivethrough at gmail.com. Or any other, it, it could be restaurant. It airport. could be any, any airport, any type of service location. We'd like to hear your, your thoughts and your experiences. All right, I got another email. And this answers another question we've been talking about. The Saudi Arabia shows. We said the, the crowd, uh, how are the tickets distributed? It's not like North Korea where it's like come or else. But in what we asked, is there any level of enticement or inducement or provocation or, you know, any, any type of, uh, I don't know, just out and out, you better go or else type of thing. Well, we just don't know anything about how we don't know over there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, now we do. We're about to find out. Because we got the scoop here from Khalid. Well, he's got 18 names here. I don't know which one is his last one. It's Khalid. We'll just say he's Khalid. Khalid's a member of the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. I know who it is. Okay. Well, I don't want to get him in trouble over there. You never know. Possibly communication with us over here in the uh, in the Western world may not be uh, you know, approved up. 
But anyway, hello, Jim and Brian. Regarding Saudi shows, tickets availability you've asked about on the show allow me to kindly explain to you how it works. Basically, our government, the General Entertainment Authority specifically, pays WWE to do these shows in Saudi Arabia and the right to then sell and distribute the tickets. They don't make people go in masses to the shows, as it was assumed in, the, in our podcast. They sell them to people living in Saudi Arabia. During the first show, the VIP ringside was reserved for VIP guests of the state. That's why the crowds were dead and lame. But every other show afterwards, it was sold out for everyone. Basically, people are not sold out for it, but basically sold to everyone. Basically, people who like wrestling, and that's why everything was registering with the crowd. And this is the best part. The reason wrestling is popular in Saudi Arabia is because prior to cable television in the 90s, we only had two state television stations. The only thing fun that was shown on TV was WWWF and Territory Wrestling. Territory some, Wrestling? That's He said, at some point of history, Tony Gurria was the most popular wrestler in Saudi Arabia. And he was invited to do a tour and meet meet the local people. I think it was during President Carter days, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and yes, that lines up with Tony Gurria's run as a tag team champion in the WWWF. But Tony Gurria was the most popular wrestler in Saudi Arabia. That's wild. I wonder what other territory wrestling they could have been getting over there. How would it have gotten there? And if we're talking the late 70s, early 80s, who had distribution like that before, you know, Vince started going international? I see. Was there a the Bill Barron's back then? Well, you know, like there, someone like that? there wasn't, but there were the Angelo Pafos. Um, oh. Or there, there were the same thing when Angelo got the Memphis tapes to fulfill his ICW time slots. When they went out of business, he kept those and it, they ended up passing into different hands. In cases, you would, even in the 70s, um, there were instances of either international sales of TV shows for brief periods of time, usually, or international piracy, not just of wrestling, but if you could get your hands on some master tapes of whatever. Nobody in the 70s, it, it, we didn't know that they were showing the WWF in Saudi Arabia in the 70s. So in the, in the 70s, most television production companies, networks, etc., didn't know what was being shown in places like that. You could make some money under the table. There's no telling what it was. And we're talking really before the prominence of Satellite Dish, or even Satellite. I mean, yeah. the first Satellites were, what, 76? Yeah, because it's a, remember the first TBS logo when it became a superstation incorporated a satellite into the logo, did it not? That's right, yeah. That because that's the space age technology, baby. It's a brand new thing. No, they were actually shipping videotapes to different parts of the world, sometimes legally, sometimes not on wrestling or any other television program. You know what? If that's true, if that's the method in which this footage somehow got onto Saudi Arabia TV and who knows where else, maybe there was a bicycle run, it went from Saudi Arabia to Syria to Iran, who knows? But that means there's a chance depending on what this footage is beyond WWWF, that there's other territory tapes in the Middle East. 
possibly or anywhere else some someplace stuck in i got a howard brody sold enough wrestling to germany to start a goddamn 24-hour wrestling channel run for five years and um and as as well uh, the the idea that uh, the uh, the television world was not as advanced and i'm not trying to put anybody down here but a lot of the united states fans think well tv from their experience um you might have seen a clip on twitter here recently i think color television debuted and it was either australia or new zealand in like 1973 and right all that footage is black and white from barnett's days in australia but just the idea of people you know Yes, color was widespread in America in the 66 season, but at the same time, they had color shows going back to the early 50s with Superman and the Lone Ranger, just depended on the studio that shot it. Most people didn't see it in color, but they didn't have any modern television that we consider modern outside Japan and the United States in other parts of the world until much later. So it was the Wild West as far as what got showed and what didn't. And also, Khalid says, P.S. Fubar, Makafakalub, and Slapco <laughs> Fud are still with the WWE, and they are also famous wrestling YouTubers in Saudi Arabia as well. So huh. they got that going for them. All righty. We've been talking over a past few shows now. Some of the listeners have written in about their trials and tribulations, travails in trying to buy. AEW tickets without mortgaging their house and the different price structures and the different, you know, layouts in the buildings they were sending us. And, and also it's been discussed uh, in, in a wide variety of places that they're not selling a lot of tickets to these upcoming tapings. And we said one may have something to do with the other. We got more information on not only AEW TV, house show, everything tickets. Would you like to hear from some of the other listeners? Yeah, let me just say something, because I know you probably have some there. We got a ton of feedback after we talked about AEW ticket issues from listeners talking about their experiences either going or not being able to go just because the price didn't make sense to them. Here's Ken from North Mississippi, who says, Hey, Brian and Jim, I heard you uh, talking about the unreal ticket prices for these AEW shows. And I can't help but agree. My 10-year-old son heard AEW House Rules was coming to Tupelo and wanted to go. Remember, this was one of the house shows, not even a TV. It's like a week and a half, two weeks ago, right? Right. He says, so I did some checking for tickets. When I looked on the arena's website, the cheapest ticket was $69 plus fees. The prices ranged from $69 to $350. In Tupelo, Mississippi. I told him we couldn't go and was glad I did because according to the wrestling news, <laughs> this was the card. Britt versus Ruby, Hobbs versus Spears, Dax versus Garcia, Statlander versus Anna J, Tony Storm versus Sky Blue, and the main event was Darby Allen and Pockets against Big Bill and the other page. So you're saying so you're saying Anna J versus Statlander and a bunch of other matches. There you go. 
So Ken goes on to say, this is the home of Memphis wrestling where we grew up watching Lawler, Dundee, the Fabs, etc. for tickets ranging from $5 to $20. Nobody is going to pay $75 plus to see a show like this. If someone hit you in the head, you still wouldn't see any stars. That's the thing, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's, you know, I got off the ticket price thing just when you started running down the card again, thanks to the wrestling news, the wrestlingnews.com. And the question becomes, even if the tickets were $20, what are you giving them on that show that if you even watch Dynamite, you'd be really hot to see? It's all about see the people. Like, there's no big feud that's wor- that they're working the house shows with. Like, Dax versus Garcia, I'll bet that was a great match live. But it doesn't have anything to do with anything that's happening on TV. It's training school matches. With those prices. Then you throw in those yeah. prices. Here's another one. Um, the title is AEW Collision Greensboro Presale or How I Learned to Just Stay Home and Watch for Free. <laughs> Hi, Jim and Brian. Within the last few hours, the presale for AEW Collision began on Ticketmaster for their taping over at the Greensboro Coliseum on August 12th. Just this morning, I was listening to the experience as I am wont to do at work and heard my fellow cult member in Toronto complain about AEW's ticket prices for collision. So I'm here to confirm that the crazy pills have been distributed south of the Mason-Dixon as well. I'm not a high roller, so I was looking at some lower bowl seats. First party prices for a lower bowl seat, just one, range from $80 for the higher seats (laughs) $192 for smack in the middle to $380 for the front row. That's not the front row ringside. That's the front row of the lower bowl. Floor seats that are available at the moment of writing are priced at an affordable $620 before fees and applicable taxes. Who are these multimillionaires that are suddenly going to the wrestling matches? Now, let, let's take a step back. I mean, this is so crazy. And I know that WWE has done well, especially in times where they didn't seem especially hot because the people that went spent a lot of money on things, although apparently all these house shows have merch issues that we've heard about. Could it be the building cost well, no, is causing? It, the, I mean, why, why price it like this? Is there a reason they have to do it that we're not thinking of? Well, he says the question must be asked, are these prices being imposed by the venues? And no, that's not the case. Yeah. This, this is Wesley from Concord, North Carolina, in case I didn't mention his name. And no, if, if you rent the building, you can, you can let them in free or charge a million dollars. The building doesn't care as long as you pay all the applicable fees that come with it. Because <laughs> they get a cut of, it, 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 in many buildings, not every single one, but they get like a cut of the Ticketmaster fee and or the ticketing fee. The Knoxville Civic Coliseum in the 90s used to charge us like 50 cents for printing out the ticket that people bought. Right? So, you know, there's... But no, the building does not set these fees. Now, building rents... If you are renting... And the Greensboro Coliseum now seats over 20,000 people. If you're renting a building that you have to charge between $600 and $100 or whatever for every ticket just to pay the building, then you're renting the wrong fucking building. 
No, building rents are more the expensive than they used to be. Yes, but how and much, how but, much could it be in Tupelo, Mississippi? Well, that's that's the thing we talk about. Corbin, Kentucky, where I don't know how much that building rents for, but I illustrated there was a building twenty miles away that they could have rented for about five hundred dollars, or maybe just a split on the concessions that seated as many people as they drew at that show. But nevertheless. It, it, <laughs> There's no reason. Well, let me let me go to one more. Let me go to one more because this speaks to the scheduling issues we were talking about with even if you can sell tickets in a market, how many shows can you run in a market in the same period of time and sell tickets to all of them? This from George from Niagara Falls. Uh, there was originally just a dynamite show booked for the Wednesday, the week they're in Ontario later on this month. They also added a tape collision show for Thursday the 29th. And then the, he says there's been zero promotion for the collision taping. I received no info regarding collision tickets, no bundles, no advertising, nothing. This is a guy that's apparently bought tickets and is on their website, or on not on, on their web, but is on their mailing list. And th so there are two... AEW shows on consecutive nights, Wednesday and Thursday, June 28th and 29th in Toronto. But in Hamilton, which as we mentioned is, he says 30 minutes, it's 40 miles, whatever the fuck. There's two more in Hamilton, Dynamite and Collision. So that makes four AEW shows in six days in that metropolitan area. And and at these prices, and he says, I don't know who routed this, but it's an absolute shit show. Even if you had like a dynamite or a pay-per-view and you want to justify those prices for something like that, dynamite, you're getting five hours, including two live on network TV, a pay-per-view is a pay-per-view. If you're running the next night or later the same week, <laughs> even if the ticket prices were significantly lower, wouldn't the first show take so many people out of the running for the second show? Yes. And what they've done is they they advertise the pay-per-view first, right? Um, or where is door? Yeah. In Toronto, yeah. Well, goddamn, wait a minute. So one of those is the pay-per-view. Yeah, Toronto. Yeah, but no, one. I'm saying one of those, so there's ta they're, they're taping Collision. They're taping Dynamite. They're at a pay-per-view. The pay-per-view came first, sold 12,000 tickets. Now they've added a clusterfuck of television tapings all around it. Is there five shows? There's five shows then. And the, I don't know. The point is, if we're this goddamn confused and people are writing us, trying to explain it to us, and they don't know and they hey, live there. Here's another thing. Jace Nakarado brought up a great issue. Jace, of course, Arcadian Vanguard's wonderful Jace Nakarado lives in Canada. He said, if they're going all these shows for a month in Canada, does that mean the wrestlers were all going back and forth? Like yes. In terms, of, in terms of visa issues, is that going to cause any problems? Oh, I, I doubt it because I'm pretty sure, you know, they got a crack legal staff there at AEW. Oh, I didn't know if you meant Canada. Well, you mean AEW, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, Canada has a real <laughs> crack legal staff, but they've got a crack legal staff. I'm sure all those T's are dotted and I's are crossed. Uh, no, that couldn't possibly lead to any problem. Uh, it, unless if they just decide to pull somebody over and fucking run their record. But this is, these guys and girls are so young. 
they've never actually been in the wrestling business. They probably don't have records. But no, that the point is they're back and forth, back and forth across because they can't make them live there for a fucking month. And they're all, and I mean, they might stay Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or whatever, or this grouping, but they're not going to be there for a month going back and forth and into Saskatoon or wherever the fuck. Maybe you could do something to christen the new show where Bret Hart shows up on the first week and announces that he's taken the entire roster of the show and they have to live in Canada and undergo the conditions <laughs> he underwent growing up in order to make it on the new show. Now that would be that would be two hours of programming they they could put on Saturday night that would uh, draw viewers. But anyway, the point is FTR running in the snow, Will Hobbs cutting down a tree. I don't know what the hell goes on up there, but it could be great. <laughs> Lumberjack Hobbs. Hey, it, it'd be just as good as what they've done with him so far. He's got about as much connection to Lumberjack as he does to anything else. We don't know what his fucking deal is, except he's <laughs> on a fake fucking. TV show TMZ. inside of, inside a fake TV show. But the point is, they're charging a fortune. They've got a, a lot of shows in close proximity to each other. They are the bloom is off the rose with a lot of their base audience because they may have at these prices have bankrupted themselves already. And then they've had countless issues with how can who do we know is going to be on those shows? They couldn't even advertise the star of the program, Punk, when they were supposed to because they couldn't get that shit straight. So, and then look at the TV that they are doing. So it's 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 not a mystery as to why the tickets aren't selling. It just takes a while to go over all the different reasons. But that's modern tickets, Brian. What what are you that back in the old days? You know the, the territories they charged. for wrestling tickets, right? You remember that, don't you? I got my ticket stub over here somewhere for the first ever Monday Night Raw. I was like the 28th person or something to buy a ticket for the first ever Raw. I think it was 12 bucks. Yeah. And that was 1993. In Manhattan. Manhattan. (laughs) Well, um, where's his name? Rob. Rob from Tulsa sent us an email that started a whole thing here. And he said that basically... When he heard the recent episode talking about the current ticket prices, he he couldn't really believe his memory was correct when he was in high school and going to Mid-South Wrestling in Tulsa, general admission tickets he thought were $5. That's the way he remembered it. So he went into the newspaper archives of the Tulsa World and found the ad for the show that he was at, and he sent a copy of it along. Tulsa and was, he says, I mean, that was the big town, right? That was Watts's town, and that was a, an 84 when you were there. That was the big year for that town. Yes, and it, I would say Tulsa in the pecking order of Mid-South towns. The best town in the territory on a regular basis, to my mind, would have been Oklahoma City or Houston. That was the the biggest gates, most regularly, the the most consistent crowds, place you're going to make some money. Right after that, and New Orleans doesn't count because there was such a wide variety. If you were in the Superdome, yes, but if you were in the you know downtown municipal auditorium, it wasn't as big as Tulsa or Houston or even Jackson, Mississippi, or whatever the case. And by 84, New Orleans wasn't as important to Mid-South as it had been in, let's say, 82 or 81 when the dog was hotter, when... Watts didn't have Oklahoma. Right. But anyway, nevertheless, so, but Tulsa was 
right by Tulsa was the next tier. It was generally right behind Oak City and, you know, Houston in terms of drawing ability. But nevertheless, he says we had Ric Flair, Hacksaw Butch Reed, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Ted DiBiase, Dick Murdoch, Jake Roberts, Humongous, he put in parentheses, Sid Vicious. I hate to pop your bubble. Uh, Rob, it wasn't Sid <laughs> in 1985. That was Jeff Van Camp still, right? Or was I believe it? so. Yes. I worked with Jeff Van Camp. He was from Louisville, played football at University of Louisville. And I actually worked with him when he first broke in right before I went to Louisiana. We had a spot show. We had like a me and whoever I was managing. I can't even remember in a handicap match. God, he was stiff. He, he was already humongous or just as Jeff Van Camp? No, he was just Jeff Van Camp. Huh. He didn't become humongous till later. But anyway... It was all for $5. No bullshit. In today's money, here's what he had the tickets were. Basically, in Tulsa in 1985, ringside was $10, which is $28.20 in today's money. Re uh, reserve tickets were $8, which is $22.55 in today's money. Adult general admission was $5, which was $14.10 in today's money. And kids' general admission was $3, which was $8.46. And he said, my redneck buddies and I would drive 25 miles from the country to see the shows on Sundays. We sat by the same old lady, Louise, and the same family of five sat in front of us each time. Whoever got there first would save the general admission seats for the rest of the crew. And it was like a wrestling family, as we've talked about. As an aside, Louise was the best. She was probably 60 and smoked like a chimney, but she bought us all one beer, but just one, because we were 15 and 16. <laughs> so then, and this was on in October of 1985, this show that we were talking about. It was Reed versus Flair for the world title. Yeah. Duggan versus Murdoch, Jake versus Humongous, DiBiase versus Sweetan. But, as we will recall, October 85 was on a downhill slide for Mid-South. And the ticket prices in Tulsa there were 10, 8, 5, and 3. But then Rob did some further digging in the Tulsa newspaper and came up with some 1984 shows that had different ticket prices and or, you know, different lineups and, you know, sent some ads for those. But those are the shows that I have my book for as well that I can show Gates for and et cetera. And I thought it might be interesting if we looked at this because ticket prices in the territory days were somewhat consistent, you know, in each territory, each um each promotion knew their towns and their territory and what they the people could afford and set the best prices. And obviously, the prices in the Northeast were the highest, even in the territory days, New York, Philly, Boston, because those towns ran once a month in major buildings, NBA buildings, or whatever the case. And so the people expected to pay more. Down South, in these smaller markets or with the towns running every week, you couldn't have that high a ticket price because you're expecting those people in smaller towns to come four times every month where they only expected the people in New York or Philly to come every three or four weeks. So that's why the 
territories with the big markets like the Northeast or like Vern Gagne's Midwest with so many big towns to run, you know, had that advantage where they didn't have to go weekly, whereas, you know, the territories to have Florida was one state. So, but they ran a lot of shows, but they were on a weekly model. So was Georgia. So was the Tennessee Territory. So was Alabama, Continental, Southeastern. With Mid-South, it was sort of a combination. It was an every other week for the main towns. They ran every two weeks, or sometimes as he got busy and expanded every three weeks. New Orleans was, they were all weekly towns to start out with in the old days, and New Orleans was the last holdout in his territory, which ended the weekly tradition by the end of 84. But still, there were smaller markets except for New Orleans and Houston, and you needed repetition of business. So the point is, within each territory, with the big major media markets, California out west in its day, Vern's AWA, the Northeast, they might be charging, I don't know, Brian, I don't have any WWWF information in front of me, but I bet you that a rings, a front row ticket in Madison Square Garden was $10 probably by the early 80s, right? If not the late 70s. I think so. Okay, at the same time, a front row ticket in the Omni might have been 7 or $8, and a front row ticket in the Mid-South Coliseum the same year was still $4. So there was a difference amongst the territories, and even in the same territory, when Watts had major spectaculars in Houston or the Superdome and jacked up the, the Superdome ringside was $25 or Houston was $15, he wouldn't have gone with a $15 or $20 ticket in Jackson, Mississippi, because it was Jackson, Mississippi. It was a whole different economic area, even though it was in the same wrestling territory. So you would have variations within your territories, but the idea was to strike the sweet spot between what they can afford to pay. We don't want to give it away, but we've got to draw these people either 12, 24, or 48 to 52 times a year. And how much can the market bear and be a burden on these people to where we're costing ourselves money in the long run? So it was a, a tightrope act. And going back years and years, there were always, you know, incidents where you could raise the prices. And remember that that was an early NWA thing, Brian. You remember championship prices. If you brought the NWA world champion to town, and I, I don't know whether Sam Muchnick started this in St. Louis, I believe he did because you see back in the late 40s, early 50s, you know, it was acknowledged that here's the ticket prices for events where the world title, the world champion is, is defending. But it, it, Eddie Graham did it in Florida, and they did it in the early days of the Omni. And various places, if the world champion is on the card, the promoters would say, we had to pay such a guarantee to get this big match that championship prices are in effect and they would either raise the normal prices for that town a dollar across the board. You know, if it was four, five, and six, it would then be five, six, and seven. Or maybe they'd do a golden circle where instead of all the floor seats being eight dollars, 
the first row or the first two rows, you jack up to $12 because you're going to be the closest seats possible to that goddamn big memorable event. And I stole all these for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. We had, at the Super Bowl of Wrestling, we did a $25 front row in 1995 where you got the best seat in the house for the show. You got into a meet and greet beforehand with some of the stars, and we had waiters from Hooters bringing you stuff from the concession stand for your 25 bucks. But that was a thing that that would be done for big shows or it, like in the old days in the territories, if, if, um, if they ran the secondary building in town, we talked about this on one of the guests, the programs not, not long ago with Mobile, Alabama going to the big building when they usually ran the, like the little expo hall. Or when Nick Goulis used to leave the Nashville Fairgrounds for a big match with the Sheik against Jackie Fargo, he'd go to the the auditorium downtown. So then tickets might be a dollar bigger because it's a mega event. So that's always been a thing, but it was never out of... The promoters always knew that the people we are selling tickets to are regular people that have families and lives and they're the lower income, if anything, in those days, and we can't run off our most devoted clientele. But I got into, as I said, into the 84 book. Before we talk about Tulsa, let me illustrate something for you, Brian. Have I ever told you the story of Lafayette, Louisiana? I don't know the story of Lafayette. I know of Lafayette. We've talked about Lafayette. But. Well, and uh, the story of Lafayette, Louisiana, is General Lafayette, this French <laughs> fuck, back in the... No. Um, this French La fuck. Lafayette, Louisiana, was one of the smaller towns that Watts went, ran regularly. Ran regularly. Watts looked like Elmer Fudd. Well, come on now. Lafayette was a TV market. It had its own local TV stations. Um, but it wasn't a big drawing wrestling town for most of the time. Because remember, Watts kind of built louisiana it was never a big money state until he took over but anyway so lafayette was decided just because they wanted to do it at a house show right before a tv taping that's where the midnight express beat magnum ta and wrestling two for the mid-south tag team title right and then two turned on ta walked out on him and they started that whole deal well we had started that program, but the, the first time that we were in Lafayette with it, because they didn't run it as you know regularly as some of the other towns, was on March 13th of 1984. And according to my records, it was a sellout at $13,600. And by the way, we made $225 each. So they, out of $225, $450, $675, and another for the eleven twenty-five, they paid that tag team match eleven hundred and twenty-five dollars out of the thirteen thousand six hundred dollar gross. So the main event got what's that about seven percent of the house. Anyway, that was a sellout at thirteen thousand six hundred at the Lafayette Auditorium. And remember, I told you when we had a scaffold match, the auditorium, the ring was on a stage. And it was an actual auditorium where you'd like you to have concerts on this stage. That's where I, you know, told you that I used to like to take that bump over the rail like Harley Race because there was nobody sitting on the other side on that edge of the stage. I wasn't going over the end of the people. Anyway, so 
because the ring's on a stage, we had the scaffold match there. It had to be like 12 feet off the ground because the ceiling was too low. But it was a little building. And it, at those prices that they charged there, that was about 2,000 people, right? So now that we've sold that out, the next time we go to Lafayette, pardon me as I flip through my uh, book, is April 1st on a Sunday night. And that was a match with the Rock and Roll Express right off of our angle that we're about to be doing. And they had raised the ticket prices because of the last sellout. So this time we sold out again at $18,500. And that was a record house for Lafayette, like the I believe the previous one was. But they had the same number of people. They just raised the prices. Because at that point in time, the opposite of what happened to him a year or two later was happening. The Gulf states were in a, a boom economy period. The oil business was doing great. And Houston, all over South Louisiana, down in New Orleans, they were just making money hand over fist, right? So now that's the second show on April 1st. So then we're out until looking, looking, looking. Where'd we go? God damn it. Sounds like Randy Savage there. Looking, 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 looking. I'm trying to, ah, <laughs> we come back on April 29th. Now it's the last stampede with Bill Watts and, and Stagger Lee. And so those, all those shows had raised prices. So now they've raised the prices the third time in a row. And we sold out again. We did $21,500 in the same building, the same number of people. And we got $300. So that's three, six, nine for the three of us. Twelve. That that would mean if Watts paid himself the same thing he paid us, fifteen hundred dollars went to the main event, which is about now more like six percent. So it's shrinking steadily downward. How much do you think Watts paid himself for working the match? Well, actually, he probably paid himself three hundred dollars and then just took the fucking massive profit that he made <laughs> by owning the company from the last Stampede tour off the top. So that was April 29th. Then that's one of the biggest shows they've ever seen in an all-time record house for the third time in a row. So Lafayette gets a rest for a little while because we got a bunch of other places to go. And then we come back May 18th against the Rock and Roll Express with a regular card. And they went back to regular ticket prices. And I don't have the house recorded because it probably wasn't anything to write home about. But... Then we've given them a break. So then we can, this is just one of the smaller towns, but this is what Watts was doing. He was manipulating the ticket prices on a regular basis that year to see what the, the market would bear. We come back on June 30th. They gave Lafayette a break because all the other towns were cooking anyway. But this time, the tickets are 15, 10, 8, and 5. And we're in the main event, Midnight versus the Rock and Roll Express for the Mid-South Tag Team title with me in a cage at ringside. And with those jacked up prices again, we did, we did another sellout and another record by just a little bit, $21,551. And this time, hold on, $357,1050. $1,700. Seventeen fifty, so about seven percent, eight percent went to the main event. So then, after June thirtieth, 
We next come back two weeks later on July 13th with a smaller card. We're wrestling Magnum TA and Terry Taylor in the semifinal. I'm not sure what the main event was, probably something with Duggan. And we sold out again, but this time the gate was only $17,800 because they dropped the ticket prices down for a regular card, but they were still higher than where they were at the start of the year. And the people were hanging with this. Then we come back 10 days later and do $12,000 on a regular show. So now we're into August. And these people in this little town have not said a word. We're still turning them fucking way for the most part, except on regular little shows. Then the end of August is eh. And then in the fall, the, the bigger shows start again. And they start jacking the prices back up, including when we finally get to, hold on, I'll get to the point of this, the scaffold match at the end of, uh, or the middle of December. Where is it? Lafayette, Sunday, December 16th. It was an afternoon, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was an evening show, but on a Sunday. And we did... $15,500 in the middle of December at regular prices. We didn't sell out for the scaffold, but that town pretty much had all year and said a record, 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 and sooner or later, at some point, it has to fucking break, right? But that's what Watts was doing. He was manipulating the ticket prices in such a hot time based on the market and how hot the show was and what the the market would bear. And we did this. That's where I'm going to go with Tulsa. He did the same thing there. And other times, you'll notice that a difference in building, not in the city, makes a difference in the gate. Uh, Rob, getting back to him, sent us information for July 15th, 1984, when instead of the the downtown assembly and convention center in Tulsa, which had been the established building, which was one we had all the major fucking riots in, the pavilion was the building out at the fairgrounds. And that's where we were on July 15th. And that card was Sonny King versus Buddy Landell, the Fantastics versus Crusher Khrushchev and Mr. Wrestling 2, who was Hercules Hernandez at that point. Junkyard Dog against Butch Reed. Hacksaw Duggan and Kerry Von Erich against the Midnight Express. Magnum TA versus Ernie Ladd for the North... Um, that was the North American title, right? And Terry Taylor versus Dr. Death. And that night, the house was $32,000, which was nothing to write home about for Tulsa. It wasn't a major show except for Kerry being loaned out. But... At the same point, that was Watts' home base, and that's why we noticed that the payoffs were better in almost every town than Tulsa. And then somebody tipped us off that Watts was taking the office expenses and or something else because of his base being there out of the town of Tulsa, and that's why that the pool for the boys was a little bit less, but we weren't supposed to know that. But the tickets were 10, 8, 6, and 4. $10 ringside, gen uh, uh, reserved $8, general admission 6, and $4 for kids, right? Which translates to 
Today, approximately $30, $23, $17.50, and $11 or $12. So it was still affordable because they were running Tulsa every two to three weeks. But then you go to the next month, August 26th, and this is not the next show. It's just what uh, Ben did the research on. But August 26th was a big event with Ric Flair in defending the world title against Kerry Von Erich. And Magnum TA was wrestling Buddy Landell, the Fantastics against the Midnight Express, Dusty Rhodes and Jim Duggan against Butch Reed and Hercules Hernandez, Sonny King versus Ernie Ladd. My God. I didn't get to see that one. Oh, my God. In 84? Ooh. Yeah. Terry Taylor versus Crusher Khrushchev and Art Cruz versus Dr. Death. Now they've got five categories of ticket prices. Instead of the previous month, it was $10 ringside. Ringside is now $25 and $15 because the NWA title's on the line and the fucking big stars are there, blah, 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 right? And, but then that's only the first few rows, however many rows. The rest of ringside was $15. Then the reserve tickets were up from 8 to 10. General admission was up from 5 to 8. Kids were up from whatever the fuck it was to 4 to 6. So the gross there that night was $53,000 with approximately the same amount of people. And then... Hold on here. Let me just zip forward a second for our uh, Tulsa. Ah, Tulsa on Friday, September 7th was back to the regular prices. And honestly, September 7th, back to school. Uh, the Friday after Labor Day, Tulsa was not a Friday night town, so it had everything working against us. We did $16,000. We got a $100 payoff. I managed... Hercules Hernandez against fucking um uh God damn, who what the Duggan? fuck I can't even No against Duggan. There we go. I'm sorry. It, it, there yeah, was September. a sweat stain. Sweat stain was on the thing. And we wrestled the Fantastics and we had a riot with six marks involved. That was the <laughs> night. That was the night that we I wrote uh I throw my belt in, clothesline Rogers, disqualification. They get the belt, whip us out of the ring. We go out and get juice on the whole audience. That's what I wrote at that night. Yeah, that's the story I've told. So that was September 7th, the worst house of the year in Tulsa. It's where we had the biggest fucking riot. Was Tulsa one of the towns that Fritz had a piece of? I believe so. I think, I think anything in Oklahoma, which basically that was just Tulsa and Oak City that Watts ran, uh, Fritz got a piece of it because of the TV penetration he had from Texas. But anyhow, uh, so then the continuing in the Tulsa experiment, because usually every other Sunday or thereabouts was the Oklahoma trip where you do Oklahoma City primarily at the Myriad Arena, the big, nice place downtown, seated almost 13,000. But sometimes we'd have to go to the Fairgrounds Coliseum that they had run years ago, but the Myriad had become the preferred building. Great security, beautiful place, big gates, nice, new, everything, right? Then we'd go to Tulsa for a 7.30 show that night, which was, no matter what building they ran, the most dangerous regular town in the territory, and where we had riot after riot. That's the riot I just talked about. And that was the one where they, the 
fans hit the fucking sheriffs with the fucking chairs over the head, knock the police out. Um, that would be our Sunday. And when we drove, we'd leave the night before because it was 525 miles from Oklahoma or from where we lived in Alexandria to Oklahoma City, a hundred over to Tulsa, and then 450 back home. So we would literally be on the road or working the shows from late the night before the shows until early the morning after the shows. We, you wouldn't be in bed. But anyway, Tulsa was another example of one of the towns that when he would have a big show, he would jack the prices up, and then conversely, he would set different records. And I'm flipping ahead to the end of the year to bring an end to the Tulsa business. In, no, uh, hold on. Ah, Sunday, December 2nd, Oklahoma City in the afternoon and Tulsa that night, we did the scaffold matches. And at that point, they made the ticket prices in Oklahoma City and we were at the Myriad, or no, we were at the uh, um, goddamn fairgrounds in Oklahoma City instead of the Myriad, which killed us there because we'd done such big houses at the Myriad, we only did $61,000 at the fairgrounds. The ticket prices were 15, 10, 8, 6, and 4. And I think it was because the people that came to the Myriad didn't like to come to the fucking fairgrounds anymore, especially for that much money, because you're liable to get in a fucking fight out there in that building. So it killed us in Oak City, but in Tulsa, we were... Again, if back in the normal building, or I'm sorry, at the uh, we were across downtown at the other building rather than the assembly center. And in that one, they jacked the prices up to 15, 12, 10, 8, and 5. And that one worked with Flair versus Magnum TA on the card, as well as the Rock and Roll and Midnight and the Scaffold. We did $64,000, which was a sellout of the building and a fucking all-time gate record in town. And that was the fourth record that we had set in Tulsa that year at different gate amounts. Do you have any questions so far, Brian? You know, <laughs> I've completely fallen in a hole on this. I have a few questions. One, I mean, what you're talking about is very interesting. And I guess as a follow-up, and, you know, eventually you left by the beginning of 85, you guys were gone. But can you do this too much to the point where it hurts things going forward, especially if things aren't that hot going forward? And secondly, with the AEW ticketing issues, they're not starting low and raising them for a big event. They're coming in high. Yeah. Once you do that, I mean, you really don't care how things look or appear, but to all of a sudden drastically lower them, is there any guarantee you're going to get more people than you would get that were going to come anyway at the higher price? Well, you're going to get some, but then also you've lowered your price and basically stooched yourself off that you can't, you can't draw at that price. See, th this was a case where business was hot, or this was a, a case in the territories if they raised the prices where there was a special attraction, something that could be pointed to and say, this costs more, but here's why. You don't get to see this very often. This is the biggest match of all time, or look at the parade of stars, or it's in a big new building like the Superdome or something. 
they don't have any of that because they haven't structured their business. They don't have ongoing rivalries and programs between their talent that creates must-see matches where the people have to know what's going to happen to the point where they got to pay ticket prices that may be jacked up to do it. And that's what I'm saying. That's what you've lost with just whatever it is, the fuck that they're doing, not only just, they, they only run, the WWE only runs a market once a year these days, right? But AEW is coming back to, because they don't have that many established markets, they're coming back to some of these well, maybe before they should at these kind of prices with nothing majorly different that you could point to and say, wow, this is worth it this time. And that's the territory business was built on repeat business and multiple multitudes of people. It was volume because if you had broadcast television and you had, you know, a, a geographic territory that you could control you could cultivate a following. You weren't spreading yourself all over the country, but at the same time, you weren't, you know, just running once a year where the people just go for a kick. You had them hooked with an ongoing program. So in summation with Tulsa, the city of Tulsa in 1984 had 21 wrestling events. No, um, yes, 21. And they grossed over $700,000. 100,000 tickets were sold to the matches in Tulsa just in one year. And 100 miles down the road in Oklahoma City, there were 24 events. And those events sold more than 180,000 tickets and grossed over $1.2 million. So just two towns in the state of Oklahoma grossed $2 million in 1984, but more importantly, sold almost 300,000 tickets. And with, with Tulsa, the that's why I was talking about the escalating prices. Uh, the scaffold match show drew 64 grand. That was a record. It broke the record set in August by Flair against Kerry that broke the record set in April by the last Stampede match. But then by the next year, they were back to regular prices because it wasn't a boom economy anymore and the it, the business was not as hot as it had been. And so they, they still had to run their business and run their towns, but they couldn't do that anymore. So they were back to their regular ticket prices because they didn't want to price everybody out of the fucking thing. And it's the same thing that Dusty did in 86, in the Great American Bash, nobody had ever seen a $50 wrestling ticket in a state of North Carolina or almost anywhere else at that point. But Dusty said, if you want to be in, in Memorial Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina with 25,000 other people, you want to be in Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia and be ringside, you're going to pay $50. You're going to see David Allen Coe and you're going to see Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, and Skydivers. And Delbert McClinton. And Delbert McClinton, every, you know, <laughs> they were, it was ridiculous to charge $50, but he gave them everything but the dancing bear. But at the same point, it, it, the prices were raised for Starcade or the prices were raised for the Great American Bash, but you still had all those regular shows. And in 1986, 
Charlotte and Greensboro, North Carolina, I say, and I'm free to discuss it or if anybody wants to give me some documentation, but they were the two biggest drawing wrestling cities per capita in the United States. Show me any other two cities that size that sold more tickets. Charlotte, were, there was 12 events at the Charlotte Coliseum and one at the Memorial Stadium, and they sold 125,000 tickets and drew $1.2 million in Charlotte, North Carolina, one year. In Greensboro, they had 14 shows, and if you take out the closed circuit and just count the live attendance and gate for Starcade, Greensboro did another 125,000 tickets and $1.4 million. And in the state of North Carolina, in 1986, Jim Crockett Promotions, in addition to everything else they did everywhere else, ran about 100 live events in the state of North Carolina, and they grossed somewhere around $3.5 million on 400,000 tickets in one state in one year. That's because they had a clientele that was regular, that was loyal. They gave them an ongoing, episodic, violent fucking conflict that they could watch, that they were invested in the personalities, and they made it so that it was affordable to go every fucking time that they opened the doors of the arena. And we have none of that right now. Well, the other thing is, and it's important to point out, Sadly, we are in an era where tickets for everything are up. We talked about baseball. It's not as easy to take your family to an afternoon weekend baseball game as it used to be. And Ella, I wouldn't even be able to afford to take my mistress. Well, there you go. Or a concert. If it's a concert with a reputable band in a big building, you're going to pay up the ass for everything. So, I mean, AEW is in that world. Is AEW the the wrestling equivalent of a competent band <laughs> in in, no. in today's environment? And the other issue is, and I think I briefly mentioned it earlier, the merch. We've heard from a number of people who have attended their house shows and actually said, I wanted to buy a t-shirt of whoever. There was nothing. They said there were just like four options, and it wasn't even anything good. And there was one merch stand. And that's... Where it's ridiculous. WWE ran their system for years, did it really well. Now they have fanatics doing it. It's a major league company, whether you like them or not. AEW, what the hell's going on over there? They, they don't bring enough merch to sell to the people to actually get into the building? Well, you know, those trucks are expensive to rent. To carry all that stuff. What, I'm surprised these people can eat when they go home that night. Their refrigerators aren't empty because they bought these tickets, much less buy a T-shirt and a hot dog at the building. I think they, these, they're going to be on cat food for a week after they go see this thing live. Anyway, thank you, Rob, for sending this in and starting this whole thing. And And just real quick, that's why... A lot of the guys in the old days, you'd try to go out and look at the crowd and eyeball the house, see what your payoff was, right? And some guys were good at it and some guys weren't, but a lot of people don't realize that the the amount of each price level tickets in every building is different, even if they're not changing the prices around. And roughly, that's why for... 
to figure out an average ticket price, uh, round number, if there's 10,000 seats in a building, let's say 8,000 of them are general admission, and they're $10. That means that's 80 grand. And then let's say there's 1,500 reserve seats at $20. There's 30 grand. That's 110. And there's 500 ringside seats at $50. There's 25 grand. So there, there's how you figure your house. But if many of the general admission tickets are sold and those seats are full, but nobody's in the expensive ones, then your average ticket price goes way down. So the same number of people pay less money. Or in the old days when you had a bad house, but most of the people that did come were the dedicated fans that wanted to be ringside or as close as possible, and general admission, they'd be shooting deer in the balcony. You might not have a lot of people, but your average ticket price was up because the ones that were there spent more money overall on average on the tickets. So to figure out a house, you have to know not only how many people are in the building, but how the building is set up and where the reserve seats are and et cetera, et cetera. And that's why I always tried to take that into account when figuring. We always used to ask the house, the gate. That's all we cared about. We didn't want to know how many people were there. What's the house? $82,000. Okay, question asked and answered. They wouldn't say 7,942 people. We didn't give a shit. So when going back and trying to figure out how many people were actually at these shows to give a statistic that the regular fans can, you know, kind of identify with, that is where it became necessary to try to figure out, you know, what was the average ticket and what were they paying back then. And, and I started recording some of the ticket prices in my book toward the end of 84 when I realized, me being the little greenhorn rookie that I was, that the higher the ticket prices, the higher the potential gate, and the higher payoff I hopefully was going to get. And generally, then we we got the formula that I was talking about earlier, the 6 or 7% or whatever. And like I said, Tulsa was light, but you'd get a better payoff if you did a big house in a town that never drew. Rock and Roll and Midnight sold out the Township Auditorium in Columbia, South Carolina for the first time in, I think, eight years in 1986. And it was only a $32,000 house or whatever, but Crockett was so fucking thrilled he gave us a grand apiece. So the main event got five grand on a $30,000 house. You know, later on, he may have regretted being so willy-nilly with his money. Well, he, Steve, he may have been <laughs> willy there, but he was nilly on some of the other ones to make up for it. But but that was the thing is, and, and that's, I've told the story where once I got kind of good at eyeballing it and figuring out what the house was going to be and then transferring that into seeing the promoter's payoff patterns and knowing what our check was going to be, when Bobby'd get in the ring, he'd grab a hold on somebody and I'd be, at the start of the match, I'd be looking at the crowd and I'd lean with my elbow on the apron of the ring and I'd hold up on the side of my cheek the number of figures indicate fingers indicating what our payoff was going to be. If it was two finger, $200, okay, I'll hold this hold a while longer. If I put up four or five fingers, four or $500, he'd get up and do a little high spot. But if I used my left hand and put the one up, that means it was a $1,000 payoff, and he'd get up and start doing everything in sight. And mostly I was pretty close. Were there guys, like from when you first got into the business, that would stand and you know, at the very beginning of the show, they would just be there counting? 
They knew how many people could sit in a certain section and they were just trying to figure it out just so they can have a chance to argue over their money, I guess. Well, yes. And I mean, they wouldn't be counted. You couldn't count individually in those days because these were big fucking buildings, but you could eyeball and you could see who was sitting where and how many overall. And of course, a lot of the guys didn't go into the mathematics that I did. So they just would yell, God damn, we got fucked. There must've been 8,000 people there. Actually, there was probably 5,500 and you know, it's about normal, whatever. But and some were really good at it. Obviously, Flair got used to seeing so many big crowds that he could pretty much come close. That's why, you know, the the I've said this many times in Philadelphia in '86, the Veteran Stadium bash, the fucking crowd me and Ric Flair both saw, and the ticket prices that we were told there was a six-figure discrepancy and something going on there, and we never solved it to this day. Elliot Murnick's gone now, I guess, so we'll never know, but something happened. He's a, as I think I either said or Rick said they may have taken the goddamn expenses for the whole tour out of Philly that first night. Everything else I, I kind of agreed with in terms of what we were told versus what was there and what happened and et cetera, but Philly was... Uh, that veteran stadium, it was almost two civic centers worth of people. And I think they reported $210,000 at 50 and $20 tickets. So yeah, they were off about a hundred, 125. Welcome to the Northeast. There you have it. Well, there you have it. Well, there, well, take it back. I will not take anything. All this right. This is your we're, show. We're finished with Rob. Should we move on to modern times jesus christ the chaplin movie no no unfortunately not aew's modern times the chaplin movie (laughs) (laughs) only only if it was fucking sydney chaplin instead of charlie (laughs) uh or maybe the robert downey jr version and I'm going to say one more thing before we move on about the Tulsa and Oklahoma City and Gates and drawing power and et cetera. There's a lot of people say, ah, Cornette never drew any money. He just talks big. There's a lot of people say, well, I drew this or I did that. And some of them even might be true, but I'll guarantee goddamn you one record that will never be broken. The Midnight Express and Watson Dog in one day, in between 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. that night in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, for the last stampede had two shows that sold 20,000 tickets, turned 5,000 people away and drew $150,000, which is well over 400 grand in today's money in fucking Oklahoma on a Sunday afternoon. Beat that. Fuck all y'all. I can bleed into a clogged toilet. <laughs> uh, no, Jim, before we move on, I have some breaking news. <laughs> Hold on, I left. I left my headset off. Well, don't let that happen. Oh hurt God, you, but... that bleeding into the clogged toilet. Well, he can unstop any drain. Ninety nine, ninety five. Well, Jim, we have some breaking news, and it in a weird way ties to you. Okay. Breaking news: Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is dead at eighty one. Uh- uh, he killed three people and injured 23 in attacks with homemade bombs from 1978 to 1995. And the other headline says, I don't know why this made me laugh. Ted Kaczynski, Unabomber, who attacked modern life, dies <laughs> in 81. Well, now that was, they were trying to make him a sympathetic figure with that headline. He attacks modern life. What does that but, mean? Well, 
Ted Kaczynski, the inspiration for, of course, Glenn Jacobs' gimmick in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Unibomb. And he didn't use a powerbomb, he used a Unibomb because it was singular, the only one that mattered. And uh, then later on, they just, they got him up there and ruined him, put him in a red mask and made him somebody's brother, I don't know. But Unibomb could have gone to the heights. I hate to hear that about Ted. Should Mayor Glenn put out a tweet thanking him for inspiring? Yes, thank you for the inspiration, Ted. (laughs) If it wasn't for a Unabomber like you, a little Unabom like me couldn't exist. Of course, there was another wrestling-related joke going around the locker rooms at that point in time that I probably can't repeat here on the air, so I won't. But just in case you wanted to know what it was, Brian. Please. What did the Unabomber and have in common? I don't know. They were both... But oh, nevertheless, oh, come on. Oh, we can't. No, I no. told you. No, we're going to bleep all of that. Jace, let the listeners wonder. We're not using any of that. I told you. See, it just the not even her name. Bleep. Just bleep her name and then bleep everything he said after that. Just just bleep everything. Just from the time that I said, fucking Brian, I can't say it on the air. And you said, wow. There you go. A new stratosphere here today, ladies and gentlemen. Will we land back on the ground? That's the question. Uh, well, and hopefully we won't shatter ourselves in the process. A lot of people landed on the ground uh, last Wednesday night. The bodies were hitting the ground. Should we move to that now while it Oof. while it's still safe? Another banner episode of AEW Dynamite this past Wednesday. I, I'm not even going to go through a lot of the actually what happened or the story behind any match because there was none or what the fuck is... This is, it's gone past a rib and into a public health crisis at this point. If nobody will rein these motherfuckers in, some authority has to step in. Hi. I don't know. what It's the booking malfeasance, the unprofessionalism, the chaos and anarchy. There's nothing about this program that taken as a television show from start to finish makes any fucking sense at all. There are individual performances, and that's all they all are. Everybody is going out there and doing an individual performance of whatever the fuck it is they want to do, whether they can do it or not, they think they can, and they're in it for themselves. There's no direction, there's no instructions, there's no... There, there's nobody in charge. There's nobody over this whole program from start to finish saying that, okay, this will make sense from 8 o'clock Eastern to 10 o'clock Eastern. Or this this angle that we're doing in segment six will stand out because it's completely different from anything else on the program. Or we're doing something very important in seg nine with our top guy, so we're not going to let the job guy in seg two do the exact same thing and get up from it, or whatever the case. There's none of that. They have completely just... Tony's apparently either cracked up or just thrown his hands up and said, y'all figure it out. Am I lying? A couple people sent me some photos from one of the matches on the show, and it was from behind, so you couldn't see the face of the wrestler, just the back of their head. And they said, look at the plumber now. And it wasn't even the plumber. It was just some other generic guy bleeding all over himself. Oh, I know who that must have been. Well, 
Again, the first match on the program, this is June 7th for anybody keeping track, a date which will live in infamy. The first match, out of, surprise, surprise, wouldn't you know who won the pony? Pockets is in the first match, and this week they're sacrificing Swerve, Swerve Strickland, who he's got something there somewhere. It's probably done now. But Brian, help me out. Swerve was affiliated with other people, including Rick Ross, who called Keith Lee a big motherfucker, and they were moguls, and they had associates. That Mogul was a group, associates, right? and the, I think the associates were the heavily tattooed man and the other tattooed man. Okay, well, now Swerve came out, and he's being managed by Prince Nana of the embassy, my old friend from Ring of Honor. Well, he's got, a that, lot of, he's got a lot of money. I mean, you can make a lot of deals when you're Prince Well, Lana. But have we, have we been told this? Did I just not remember that? Because we haven't seen Swerve in a while wrestling on this program. He's somewhere else. Yeah, I, but don't, now, I don't know what's going on because I think a lot of the stuff with him may have played out on other shows that they have. I mean, we never really saw a conclusive ending to him and Keith Lee, did we? Well, no. We, I, has Keith Lee come to a conclusive ending? Because we don't see him at all. No, he was in that battle royal. Uh, but nevertheless, Nana is now Swerve's manager. He's the world's first mute manager. He's been managing very... He walks out to the ring with various people, but you never hear him speak. Nobody says, oh, here's Prince Nana. Here's his backstory. Here's why he's here. Here's what he hopes to accomplish. And there was 20 minutes of this Tony's clown, Tony's tickle, here he comes, it's Tony's clown. You didn't know I could sound just like the Everly Brothers, did you? That sounds nothing like the Everly Brothers. How dare you disgrace the it memory was, of Phil and Don Everly with your it bad was singing. It close to Don, even if it wasn't good enough for Phil. Wasn't no Kathy's clown. Get out of here. Okay, so the mascot looks like somebody trained a chimpanzee to hit the ropes. And Swerve could have been something, but he's because he's not rotten, but it's all over now, as Mick and Keith would say. And this was 20 minutes until the match was over. And then here comes Brian Cage, Bishop Khan, Tia Leone, and the rest of Nana's guys. And they come in and get some shitty looking heat, in quotation marks for a second, until the blackout. And it's a long blackout. Apparently Sting's not as quick as he used to be and then the lights come back on and the heels are out of the ring and darby and sting are standing in the ring with baseball bats and they've saved the mascot and i know that sting has no philosophical love of wrestling or you know wanting to hold up for its credibility or anything like that but even he's got to be embarrassed at this point that he's been reduced to coming out and saving this little fucking dick lick. No, he likes the money. Well, I know he likes the money and he has no philosophical yeah. love of the business, but one would think just, God damn, I used to be involved with Ric Flair and fucking Hulk Hogan and now it's, it's pockets. Business. It's all business to him. Hey, I don't want to go there and put on my face paint. I'll give you $10,000. All right, where do you want me to sit? That's what it is. <sighs> All right, well, anyway, that was that was the first 25 minutes, really, of the program. And then they announced that Brian Danielson is going to wrestle on the Forbidden Door pay-per-view Okada 
Yeah, I want to see that. Well, and the same people who look forward to this show every year will love it too, and everybody else said, who, what, is this guy on our television? Don't disagree with you, and certainly I'm not, when I say I want to see that match, I'm probably not thinking like the average person, because I know who Okada is. Did you see the promo that Danielson did for the match? I kind of zoned out. It was better than every single promo he's done, at least since he first didn't turn heel way back. But it's better, and you believed him more than anything he has done with the Blackpool Combat Club. It was the best thing he's done promo-wise. And it was for the Okada match, which, you know, I don't which, know. Well, I mean, it'll be a fine match. And, you know, the people who buy the Forbidden Door pay-per-view every year to see Japanese wrestlers that they know against the AEW guys will like it, but everybody else watching this program is going, who, what? They see footage a week or two in advance of this guy, and you can't hear him talk because I'm pretty sure he doesn't speak English, or at least not well. So there's no... It's just see the match. It's not see the issue, see the personalities. And that's going to go only so far. And speaking of issues with personalities, they did a TNT collision commercial, the network, not AEW. It was in commercial time. And they were plugging the return of CM Punk. He's coming back June 17th. And the fans, CM Punk chants in the commercial. They are putting a lot of stock in this. I wonder how Warner Brothers Discovery feels about Tony's EVPs sabotaging the company's biggest ratings draw for their own selfish purposes to the point where they've damaged all of their reputations with their childish whining and bullshit. I think he's worried about those issues with CNN. Then he'll worry about Tony Khan. (laughs) So then... We had a six-man tag with the BBC against Muffin Top Taylor, Cupcake, and Rocky Romero, the best friends. And Rocky Romero only has to be a best friend on American TV for the two weeks before the Forbidden Door pay-per-view. And obviously, since this was Muffin Top and Cupcake, (laughs) but at the same point, do you remember, it's on Twitter every so often when they retweet the footage of the Sammy Hagar impersonator that was introduced at Madison Square Garden yeah, in 85. Of course, of course. Taylor looks like a mark that slipped into a battle royal just by walking in the procession and nobody really noticed till he got in the ring. So as soon as the BBC get to ringside, one guy whacked the plumber with a chair, the other guy dove off the top and they started to six way on the floor. And that was enough for me. If they're not going to try to have a fucking match, I'm not going to try to listen or watch. And by the time this thing was over, it was 40 minutes into the show. And from speed search on screen, all the normal things that you would expect to happen happened, including the fake elbows at the finish while Moxley was indulging his autoerotic asphyxiation fantasies on one of his opponents with the bulldog choke, your your thoughts. It's exactly what you think it would be. I mean, the best friends suck. And Chuck Taylor looks worse now than he ever has before. And you know what it's going to be with Moxley. And Claudio means nothing. He's just Moxley's backup. They're trying so hard to get Yuta over. 
the weird thing to me that stood out was Excalibur on at least two occasions called Danielson the greatest wrestler of all time. That's a weird thing to all of a sudden introduce into the mix. <laughs> the announcer who's not a heel announcer is calling this guy who's now a heel the greatest wrestler of all time. Of all time, baby. That seems a bit ridiculous. It does seem a little bit excessive, but, you know, Sockface do get carried away. Moxley's so bad, though, I'll tell you. I think I'm starting to see why some people like him. The more you watch him, he's so bad at everything, it becomes almost funny. At one point in the match, they cut the camera so you couldn't exactly see it, but he just stood in the ring because the other guy wasn't there. He didn't know what to do. His blows look like shit. How many times do you just see him fall and like roll? <laughs> I was thinking about that when I saw it happen here, and then I saw it happen on the floor. He falls he's, and then he just rolls having, he's away. He's having flashbacks that he's on fire and he's stopping and dropping and then rolling. He just rolls away. I don't know what that is. But Yuta's ridiculous, and I'm sorry. I mean, he just looks... For all the reasons I have problems with Adam Cole, for the push they're giving Yuta and the way they're trying to make him into a badass... It doesn't work for me right now at all. I agree. I concur. But then did you see the transmission problem that they had right after that match where they lost their feed from the wrestling arena and they got the wires crossed with that security camera footage? Did you see that? I'm not sure. Suddenly, a security camera at some reform school broke into the feed and there were three of the juvenile delinquents standing there trying to cut a promo like they were real wrestlers. Oh, wait a minute. Checking my notes, it was Hangnail Page and the Buckaroos. I'm sorry. Apparently, that was not juvenile delinquents from the local reform home. They did some inside lines to pop themselves only. Did you hear when, when Page said something to the effect of the match? Well, I didn't see it, but it sounded great. Did you hear that line? That's what they get they get their panties in a wad about because when they were on independent shows and they would ask one of the veterans that was guesting for the night in the main event, what did you think of my match? <laughs> hey, I didn't see it, but it sounded great. And uh so they're they're very butthurt about all the veterans that blew them off because for obvious reasons, like I'm doing now. When did Nikki join the hair club for men? I don't know. Have you, it's, I mean, it's been going it for a while. No, but didn't it used to be blonde? Well, when he grew his beard, he kind of dyed it all so that it would, uh, you know, match. But it's, it's like a Vince McMahon dye job now. It's ridiculous. It's so dark and everywhere. He look, they both look like they're being made up to a, a remake of I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Speaking of things that Excalibur said on commentary that were ridiculous, what are your thoughts on AEW calling them the Hung Bucks? I did not hear that. Oh, yeah. No, that's what they're calling them. Hangman Page and the Young Bucks, the Hung Bucks. Well, seems pretty like, stupid to me. I'd like to see them hung up by their thumbs. Does that count? Uh, they were the original, the original inspiration for Vienna sausage, Maddie and Nikki. And next week we're going to see the BBC against the Buckaroos. So that's just going to be fantastic. And also another dream match after you eat 
copious amounts of Taco Bell and go to sleep with filled with alcohol, you will dream this. Yeah. Twinkle Toes is going to wrestle Will Ostrich at the pay-per-view. Yeah, that's another big one that they're doing at the pay-per-view. And that's another guy that we see again on television, what, every six months? Ostrich shows up once and... All right. They had a big match at the Tokyo Dome, and I enjoyed it. And I know it's not exactly your cup of tea, but it was a big match. And they're doing a rematch at this pay-per-view with no buildup beyond this announcement here. Are there going to be any matches with anybody that we like that are actually on the TV program on a regular basis? Well, based on what MJF said in that promo, uh, or no, it was the media scrum, he's not going to be on the New Japan show unless that was just talk. Oh, Christ. I don't know if CM Punk's going to be on that show, especially if... Uh, well, he better not be and spoil friends of the, the fucking... Bucks. Yeah. Well, spoil the debut of the... Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It, it, you know, I don't know. It, you would... One would think that... I mean, I here's the thing. One would think that his first appearance uh, and the, the first advertised appearance obviously is June 17th on Collision, but are they going to turn around and in 10 days just shoehorn the biggest star in the company into a fucking match on the pay-per-view that quickly? No, exactly. They're not going to do that. But I will say, Okada versus Danielson and a rematch between Osprey and Omega for that audience, that's a big deal. Those two matches are bigger than any match they had on the show last year. So we got to watch this, right, is what you're saying? I will watch this, so you can if you would like. All right, well, I may still be getting through the MJF and Adam Cole promo by that point in time. It's only two weeks away. I'm going to say this. Long MJF is better than anybody else on the show, long or short. But this was testing things for me, and I'll tell you why. Because they, from the time that MJF's music played and he came out and started talking and cutting a promo on the people of Colorado to the time that this thing got wrapped up verbally was almost 20 minutes, 18 minutes. And it there was no life to this. They're, they're both, they can talk their ass off. But besides the fact that it went on so long, they did more damage to each other, in my opinion, than they did to build the match. I'm not, I might have wanted to see the match before they started talking after they finished with each other. I'm not sure I want to see either one of them against anybody else. I've never seen such real life. I know we always say wrestling should be real and real emotion, but when you tell all the fans, what is legitimately wrong with both of, of your two of your top stars and why they shouldn't like them, and you're telling the truth, is that productive or counterproductive? I, and Adam Cole came out two minutes into the thing. Just as soon as MJF had said he's got no competition, nobody's on the level of the devil... Then Adam's music plays. It takes him two minutes to get to the ring. But then MJF proceeded to vent at him for seven solid fucking minutes while Adam Cole just leaned in the corner and kind of smirked and or nodded like, oh, that was a good one, or just listened to him. And they were in opposite corners of the ring 
And remember, I've said in the past, you shouldn't be right up on a fucking guy and say some shit that he ought to punch you for and him have to listen to you for five minutes. But I'm not sure, Brian, if Adam Cole could have easily walked across the ring and punched him about three and a half minutes into that seven-minute saga. And it, it, But it, I'm not sure why that MJF couldn't have said all those things about Adam Cole and then had Adam Cole do all I can stands, can't stands more and come out. But he tried, he put him over at the beginning, MJF did. Yeah, he looked up to him in Ring of Honor when he was a kid. My God, I feel old. <laughs> I'm wearing socks right now that I had in Ring of Honor. You know, but he put over his hair, he was jacked, he had a tan, he was great in the ring, great on the mic. He was great everywhere. He was the greatest world champion in the history of that company in Florida, and that's undisputed. And then, and then MJF said, I, I couldn't wait to wrestle you, and I figured we'd have an unparalleled rivalry. And then he said, and then this guy showed up. What happened to you? The Panama Playboy to the Panama Game Boy. He mocked him for not having a tan. Britt Baker's got his balls. His body is shit. He said, you're so frail, you make crack whores jealous. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, some people are blaming <laughs> AEW for not presenting Adam Cole right, but he's had every push possible. So he just apparently is a failure. And then MJF list, listed his accomplishments and went on and on and then said that he heard that Adam Cole only came to AEW because Vince McMahon didn't think he was a top guy and MJF thinks Vince was right. And I mean, my God, I, f I felt like fucking throwing Adam Cole a box of Kleenex or something. I was afraid he was going to fucking break down and cry by the time this verbal assault was finished. And I'm thinking, boy, he's going to have a comeback. And he got the mic and his first word was, really? Really? I said, what the fuck? So he turns around and mentions MJF's fiance dumping him. He's a douchebag. Adam Cole had no comeback whatsoever for the knocks on his physique, which is why that it shouldn't have been brought up. But he said, you're talking about my body of work. No, he's not. And nobody thought that. And he tried to deflect it, but... And then he dares MJF to piss in a cup. <laughs> that was incredible. I can't believe that. He told the entire... So now the entire national television audience has been told by the world champion that his apparently next challenger looks like a goddamn, you know, a chain gang, solitary confinement convict that's been let out of the fucking hole and he's 120 pounds skin and bones. And the champion has been accused by the challenger of being on the sauce. I'm not out of shape. You're on steroids. Yeah. And then he says, I swear on my life, nobody in the locker room respects you. That sounds like one of those fucking AEW kookamonga click ribbon on the square type of things. And then he says he's selfish, conceited, and lazy. And the fans, nobody respects you. And the fans chant, no respect, no respect. And MGF says, well, that's tough talk coming from Keith Lee's manager. 
<laughs> and it, you know, so I, then, again, can I just say something? Though? I'm yes. laughing because it's funny. It's funny because it's inside nonsense that doesn't belong in this segment. So they just, it, again, they've just torn each other down rather than building their confrontation up. And then they're not even going to have one until finally Adam Cole calls MJF a coward and says, you won't fight me because I'm better than you and they know it. And then MJF loses his mind suddenly and says, I'll fight you anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And of course, Adam Cole accepts and leaves after outsmarting him. And it, did I mention in 18 minutes? MJF so, is great. The problem is, who's he going to work with? And it seemed to me watching this, I, I mean, I know the payoff was him making fun of Adam Cole excessively while Adam Cole stood there and took it, like you said, and then had no good comedic comeback or any kind of comeback at all. But MJF built him up. And everything he was saying, you're like, yeah, he, he was that guy once. And then you're looking at who he is now. And, and uh, you know, I. Nice reminder that the old gray mare ain't what it used to be. I think MJF, the same way he tried to build up his opponents in the four way match, he tried to do it here with Adam Cole. The problem is, Adam Cole's coming off that Jericho feud, which was terrible, had the worst match ever on a pay per view. And now he's all of a sudden here. The people like the pop for his music and his catchphrase and his pointing and everything else. Crouching. I don't know what he looks like. He's going to take a dump. <laughs> MJF should have kicked him when he did that right in front of MJF. Why didn't MJF <laughs> just fucking kick him? Just kick him in the nuts or in the face. They're both right there. He exposed his balls. So, I mean, the problem is Adam Cole. The other thing is this. People like Adam Cole. People previously ended up liking him because he was really good as a heel. His best role is as a heel. And more than likely because of his physique, make him a chicken shit heel. It works then. Then he could play to all of his strengths. He could do all the super kicks and thigh slapping he wants. Well, but the problem is, is that he went and got himself hurt and was out for so long. He got immense amounts of sympathy from the fans and they were glad to see him make his return and so now they don't want to boo him because they just got him back they missed him because he went away but look at the state of him they're running out of mjf opponents it hit me during this you know we've talked about orange cassidy they've got to do another match with darby what the fuck why is that not being continued Darby, he, you would he think? He fucked Darby. He fucked Darby. Darby should want a rematch. Darby should be campaigning instead of fucking around saving the goddamn company mascot. He should be demanding the opportunity to work his way back into contention with single match after single match till he gets what he wants. Did we ever get resolution on what happened with him and Sting? Remember Sting showed up to confront him? And then we never saw Sting and MJF together again. I forgot about that. Yeah, Sting showed up to tell him off. Everyone just shows up. You know, you can't blame him. This is why heels get sympathy sometimes. This guy's fighting back. All these people just show up to tell him off. <laughs> he beats him to the punch. But they're running out of opponents for him because we've seen Moxley. Don't need to see that again. 
Punk is the one that's intriguing because that story still lives. Like there was never a conclusive ending to that. But I don't know if that's the thing to go to right now, but who else? They haven't built anyone up. Who have they built up for the world champion? Well, besides the fact that the Punk and MJF thing was not resolved, Punk left as the reigning champion and was injured. That's right. So, but the thing is, it's got to, there has to be time taken because Punk can't lose, but they don't want to probably take it off MJF right now. Anyway. Maybe they can create a second world championship. <laughs> the Collision Universal Championship. You know what? Because MJF only wrestles every so often. They've That's been making right. a big deal out of it. That's right. So now they'll have the working man's title. <laughs> if they can find anybody to work, there weren't any of those people in the next match. Do you want to see Cole versus MJF after that? No. No, I don't. Like, and you said it went too long. Like, There's a way to have this... So MJF gets some hits out. Cole comes out and confronts him. Instead, it turned into the whole thing. And I'll talk about it a little later with Callus. Maybe Cole should have come out without his music and confronted him. It would have been quicker, but maybe it also would have been better. Well, but then it would have it left more time for the next match. A tornado tag team match. All four in the ring. Of course, that's actually false advertising. They didn't use the ring most of the time, but. All four in action at the same time with Hook and Jungle Boy against Preston Vance and the Lucha guy with Jose. And a lot of people speculated, was Jungle Boy's match with Rush his punishment for being a dick at the Fan Fest or whatever? And as that wouldn't make any sense. Rush went into business for himself because he's an obnoxious piece of shit and just chopped the guy up and beat him up and Knew he wasn't going to do anything about it. Doesn't know his place on the card. This is Jungle Boy's punishment. He went, we talked about the Darby Allen went from challenging for the world title to what the fuck is he doing? Jungle Boy has gone from challenging for the world title to being partners with Hook against two guys that we've barely ever seen and aren't worth seeing again. This has got to be his punishment. Has anybody ever fallen so far so quickly? And this match was, what can describe this match? Well, first of all, let's just say the concept is a wonderful blow off to a feud. There is no feud. What is this? This is the first time we've seen this match and these guys in the ring and it went right to this. They jumped, Hook and Jungle Boy helped him last week and we went to a Texas Tornado tag match. Every match on this show. You know what? Almost every match on this show is either a stipulation match or a match with just no rules. Where the <laughs> referee's there, but they just like kind of bounce around with their hands in the air or, you know, mug for the camera, one, one or the other. Lazy booking. So in this one again, this one little angle with these underneath guys and Jungle Boy who's been featured. But then the heels jump the baby faces from behind on their entrance. Hold on. If we're keeping track, um, the uh, BBC match was a jump in the entrance. Okay, that's the one uh, uh, That's the one we had. There's another one later. But this was a jump in the entrance. Preston Vance, either he looks either confused or scared or lost all the time. The look on there's not many expressions on his face, but the one that he has conveys all of that. And I don't, it, 
I guess he's been around for a while. I know from OVW, from doing seminars, from being involved in training, there, there are cases where some great athletes in other sports or other pursuits, just they don't get it. And I'm wondering why are they, I don't know whether to term it, encouraging him or deluding him by putting him on television He's lost, he's confused, he's herky-jerky. He looks like he can't figure out what's going on around him. At one point, he just took a bump and rolled out on the floor and leaned on the railing in full camera view on the opposite side of the ring and stared at both of the baby faces, lackadaisically beating up his partner, the lucha guy. And then when Hook was chasing Jose, he came alive and clotheslined him because he was waiting for his spot one minute too early. He's stealing my stuff. And then the Lucha guy somewhere produced a 30-foot-long fluorescent green extension cord and tried to whip Jungle Boy with it, but it was so long he whipped, it went over Jungle Boy and it got hooked on the top turnbuckle <laughs> and he couldn't get it unhooked. And he keeps jerking and pulling and Jungle Boy just selling, wandering around while this guy, and then when he gets the fucking thing loose, he tries to put it around Jungle Boy's neck. It's 30 feet fucking long. He can't, he gets it around his leg. He can't grab the fucking thing. It's everything at AEW. Either the chains are too short or too long. Nothing's ever the right length. And then Hook and Vance go out in the crowd. They're fighting in the crowd for a break spot. And I watched the picture in picture because I couldn't turn away. In picture in picture, just not even on television. They're setting up tables at ringside. Jose's helping, and Vance has a trash can on his head. And Hook and Vance fake fight walked through the entire arena to come back to the ring or ringside. So they come back on the air, and then Hook gets a logging chain that's got to be 12 feet long and wraps it around his hand and jumps off the barricade and hits Preston Vance. Now, you can go back and look. He clearly blocked the blow. The chain came nowhere near his head. On slow-mo, it's clear as day. But Vance, the camera's off of him for a minute. He juices a gusher. So it wasn't a hard way. They clearly blocked the chain. So he had to be the one to get his own juice. And he got it almost around on the on his temple. I've never seen a guy bleeding from the side of his head like that. He could have cut an artery and just bled out. There's an artery over there somewhere. That's why all the gig marks are in the middle of the forehead. Because it's just flesh and bone. And he was... This had to be the first time maybe he's ever gotten color. Either that or I know it had to be the first time on television. So now they're wallowing around on the floor. The jobber is bleeding buckets and it means nothing. And then Hook suplexes this poor fucker who's already losing blood off the apron through the two tables but missed one of them and went through the, the far one in such a manner that the back of Hook's head came down and goddamn Preston Vance's nuts. So now he had his a do-it-yourself fucking vasectomy, courtesy of Hook's head. Then Jose gets in the ring 
to fight Jungle Boy and rips his jacket and his shirt off, and Jose, the assistant, is bigger than Jungle Boy. He was kind of jacked up. Yeah, he's in good shape. Yeah. I want to see him wrestle. And then finally, Jungle Boy got a snare trap on Lucha Guy and won this match. And it, I can't decide whether it looked faker when Preston Vance was on offense or defense. I can't decide whether Jose was the, should be the wrestler and the other guy should be the manager. And every time Sockface, apparently now the heel group here, Jose and Preston Vance and Lucha Guy, what's his name? Psychedelico? No, this is a different one. And it's either, and I apologize for not being sure, but I have no idea who this guy is. It's either Drawlistico or... That's it. That's is that it. it? Okay. That's it. Well, every time that Sockface says the heel group's name... It sounds like he's throwing up on the air. It's it's some Spanish phrase, but la fraction goblet. What is it? I can't understand him. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. I think it's los faccion ignoborales. Well, that's going to play in fucking Birmingham. Or maybe even Gadsden, Alabama. So that was that match. Uh, again, a match with the only person anybody cares about at all is Jungle Boy in this match. Preston Vance, bless him, don't know him, never met him, but he is far from a fucking natural, and all of his shit looks rotten, and he looks lost. The other guy nobody knows. And then there's poor Hook, who we've talked about, how they dropped the ball and then just stick him in shit for whatever reason. And blood and fighting in the arena and furniture and weapons. Same thing as the second match. Same thing as the match they're going to have later on. Over and over and over. Any comments you'd like to make? I mean, why? Why this match? Why these guys here? Again, they never had a match. Hook and Jungle Boy have done a few things together to unite them in hair. I don't really know what their connection is. And then... They're fighting like, of all the low-down, nothing-happening factions in AEW, Jose the Assistant, the guy we think is Drillistico, we're not sure of his name, and Preston Vance, Captain Charisma himself. This is the worst faction there is. Is I guess Roosh technically is a part of this. I can only imagine how much damage he would do to his opponents in a match like this. <laughs> After the Lord. last time I saw him in there with Jungle Boy, and is Andrade still technically, is Jose still his assistant, I guess is the... I forgot it. Jose first assisted Andrade. Well, first it was, was it Vicky? Then it was Chavo. Then it was Jose. We missed somebody in there. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. All right. The moment that we were waiting for, Tony's announcement. Brian, take it away. Hi. Now, let me just say, Tony Khan seems like a very nice guy. I feel bad if we scared him off using thanks, guys. We ran him off of thanks, guys. But high is just as funny, and we're going to run with that, and no one's as high as Tony Khan! There you go. Pretty soon he's going to be opening up. All right, you son of a bitches.
Who's holding the cue card? You said teleprompter. I want to think it's like QT holding up cue cards. No, no. QT's cue cards. There's his new gimmick. No, no, they're not doing it. They need to shave his, his head and call him cue ball QT. But they're not doing cue cards because they are scrolling that teleprompter at the exact pace that they would like Tony to speak in. And that's why it's, I'm Hi. thinking. I'm that a real either, little boy. I really have feelings. He's like Pinocchio. Well, that's why I'm thinking they either the the guy turning the the uh, teleprompter reel was either on Soma's or they've turned up Tony's propofol valve too far because now he's gone from bouncing all over the walls like he was when he first started getting on television to almost trailing off and and passing out on the announcements. It's almost that Star Trek episode where the the leader of the planet was really drugged and he was just a puppet for the uh, the real heels behind the whole thing. And they would put him in the chair and put him on television and the microphone would cover that his mouth wasn't moving. And he'd make the announcements over the loudspeaker. That's the next step for Tony Khan. Hi. This popped the number once. So, I am... Going to do it again. Okay. Back to you. So they announced the main event on June 17th for the debut collision will be a six-man tag team match with Jen and Juice joining up with Samoa Joe against FTR and CM Punk. And that's the way he says it. And he just says the name and then they get out of it like they did last week. And here the, that's going to be a great six-man tag team match. It doesn't really have anything to do with anything that's been going on, but most of their programming doesn't either. The problem becomes that, again, besides the fact that they have, they have done to Chicago what they've done to Ontario in terms of loading up, so they're at... at the United Center on the 17th, they're at the other building on the other day, whatever the fuck. And then they've damaged everybody's reputation. And then we haven't seen Samoa Joe in months. Punk's, you know, obviously, where you, we know where he's been. So it's going to be a great match that will actually be even, even better than the dream matches at Forbidden Door, Okada and Danielson, or Twinkle Toes and Ostrich. This will be a great tag team match that will actually mean something for AEW's business moving forward with its regular talent. But, you know, that remains to be seen whose side the fans are going to be on and why. You know, let's get past Tony's uh, bizarre, you know, it's like, I'm a real boy. It's just, I'm telling you, it's just like there's something like they're trying to program him to act normal. I was a little disappointed. I guess you can't do what you did the first time, but I would almost rather have him talk for 30 minutes because he has to say something. Yeah, yeah. Than have another six-man match. And again, I want to see stuff with him and FTR. I like their opponents. And we've heard that Punk wants to do something with Joe. So here's a natural way to set something up. They've buried the lead, though. Right. There's no reason that that six-man tag match could not have main-evented week two or week three. Week one, first time out of the gate, 
We have not seen CM Punk since September. They should be announcing, ladies and gentlemen, on the first episode of Collision, CM Punk will return to AEW. And he will have an exclusive live interview where he will explain where he's been and where he's going. And that's all you need to say. Booking him to wrestle is not going to sell any more tickets or get any more ratings than that because that's the start of the fucking story you're going to tell. That's page one. We haven't seen him. Where's he? They've never told us where he's been on television. They never told us that he was even injured on television. They never told us what the outcome of that was. They ain't told us dick. So starting with that, CM Punk, the man who won the world championship on our pay-per-view in September and had to immediately relinquish it because of surgery for a torn fucking whatever, after nine months is back and is going to speak. Where's he been? What's he been doing? Where's he going to be? And what's he going to be doing? You'll find out. That's page one. That's the start of the fucking book. And that's 30 minutes of a two-hour show. That people will watch and tune in for. They tuned in the, the fucking announcement that he was coming back from Tony was the highest viewed point or almost of the program last week or week four, whatever it was. You think... 30 minutes of CM Punk in the ring telling his story and potentially people coming out and getting involved as he tells it. And he lets we, you know he's not leaving. He'll be there at the end of the show for whatever's going to happen. Yeah. <sighs> All right. That's the only thing. Again, it'll be a great match. And, you know, again, they burned us out. Both companies have burned me out, at least, on six-man tag matches. But that's ridiculous, yes. But I'm intrigued by this, and I've been saying it. I like Juice. I like Jay. It sounds ridiculous saying it like that. I like Juice Robinson. Jay White's been all right, but Juice Robinson's the one that really stands out to me. And Samoa Joe and Punk is intriguing. Well, what was up next was very brief. Uh, Don Fallis, as we know, now has the Japanese superstar Take a Shit under his wing. Takeshita. I said that. He's earned it. Come on. Uh, I like Ta I, he's He's always going to be my little boy, Take, to me. And Take had a match with Casper Milktoast. I don't know what his name was. I don't think they ever said it. Didn't matter anyway. And now, three years into the show, four years, whatever, they're doing job matches. They couldn't get anybody over at the start of the thing. Couldn't just let anybody have a win, but now they do. And here's the thing, Take has great heel expressions and facials. He's got the great heel attitude and demeanor. He's got the size. He was more exciting, quote unquote, as a babyface because the style that he worked. But I've got, I think I've got an inkling that he might be a big deal as a heel in this company. And as soon as he gets comfortable with the healing style which i'm sure he's never done before especially an american heel style if somebody can help bring him along then i think he's going to be a top guy in the company there was one point during the match where i was like noticing his facial expressions and i'm like man these are so good and at yeah. that moment it hit me he slowed this down like yes. purposely he slowed this down and that's where i noticed the facial expressions and he's great i think he's really good 
Before he would run, run, dive, run, jump, run, dive. Now he slowed it down. That's why I said he was more exciting as a babyface, doing everything everybody else does. But this guy has personality. He slowed it down. You could see his face. You could see his. He looks like the heel in a kung fu movie. That fucking snarl. But anyway, he beat the guy in a minute and a half. And then Don Fallis does the in ring promo. And I think I'm figured out what they're doing here. And because you asked last week or on one of the programs, said, are they sweetening that? I don't know. I'm not saying 100% no, there's no sweetening. But I think what they're doing, and this Michael Mansuri came from the WWE. He, he knows a little bit about what's going on, right? Their new video guy. What they're doing is a combination of things. It's really there, but they're accentuating it. They're turning the crowd way up. Remember I said the other week you could hear their heartbeats. They're turning the crowd way up. And when guys are doing a, a promo in the ring, speaking on the PA microphone, that audio is going to two different places. It goes to what they could program audio, which means it goes out like the announcer of microphones and all the everything goes to program, to the TV show that the viewer at home has seen. But they also feed the PA microphone audio, unlike the announcers, they feed the PA mic to the house as well so the people can hear it. Are you following me, Brian? Yeah, and they've always had audio issues. I mean, even doing the MJF Adam Cole thing, it was hard to hear them at times. Well, yes, but audio issues aside, that's in a perfect world. They're feeding that, that in-ring microphone audio to the program and to the PA, and that's why that you can hear the echo of the PA microphone on the program audio because it's it's being picked up in the building. Sometimes you'll hear when they do have an audio problem and the program audio is, is being fed, but not the PA. You will hear the guy talk on the microphone, but the, the people you obviously hear, the people can't hear it and he'll start hitting it. Like, why isn't this on? That's because he can't tell it's going to the program. He can only tell the PA that's what he's hearing. Or there's times that you will see a guy start talking on the PA mic, but you can't hear. You just hear the muffled woo in the arena. That's where they didn't bring it to program, and you're hearing the PA mic. So what they're doing here, I believe, is they're turning the crowd microphones way up. They're turning the program audio on the PA microphone way down, and that way they're picking up the PA feed on the crowd microphones and the, the PA microphone that the talent is holding, so they're accentuating the drown-out effect. When the people are screaming, you can't hear Don Callis. It doesn't matter how loud the people in an arena scream. If your full level of audio is going to program from that microphone, it would be like the announcers talking. You could hear them even over the crowd. But if you drop that and pick up the hollowness and, and the reverberation of the PA microphone in the building, then you hear what they're saying, but it's not as loud and overwhelming over the crowd because now it's mixed more into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, good, because that was more interesting than the promo. Two things. One thing I want to say as a positive. Takeshita, with Callus far behind him, looks like he may need to catch his breath to catch up. <laughs> Came out no music. 
and you get a reaction. And I thought about it because on Monday, not that anyone cares about this match or anything, Becky Lynch versus, I think, Shayna. Not Shayna. Cruella. Cruella. Trish and Zoe Stark come out. They hit her music. So the people may have reacted to the music. I don't know. The music's so loud you can't tell. But then the music cuts off. They're done reacting. Yeah. If someone just comes out with no music, you get crowd noise picking up, and it's noticeable. You get people standing up, and it creates a wave. Hey, this guy's standing up. What does he see? I can't see. What does he see? You don't get any of that. It's just the music well, you, know, you know why? Because I was around for the reverse 45 years ago when they started playing music for some main event guys. The people stood up and popped when they heard music. Just, wow, they're playing music for this guy? He must be important. Because it was different. And now they react louder when there's no music because it's different. Something to think about, though, in terms of going backwards, uh, where things may work for certain people. But the other thing I wanted to say, I really, really like Takeshita as a heel. Don Callis. <laughs> He said a lot of things in this promo about, you know, cutting out of cancer and this and that. Tell me exactly why he's mad at Kenny Omega. I don't know. Right? I know that Kenny has been like a cancer in his body after all that he did for Kenny. And he was also like family. And like family. <laughs> and so now Don said, me and my family, he wants to be the Bobby Heenan. He wants to start the Heenan family. Me and my family are going to cut the elite out of this company. Now, if they will do that, that's an even bigger service than the American Cancer Society provides, but I don't know if he's going to do it. But we, no, it's not yet been explained or understood why that Don was so suddenly so willing to stab his best friend or a member of his family, not in the back, but literally in the face. Did we ever find out the significance of the screwdriver to this whole thing? No, I think it just because they couldn't figure out how to make it work if it was a Bloody Mary. Huh, good point. So anyway, the next segment, real quick, it was a backstage pre-tape, but Officer Bar Brady, outside Christian Cage's locker room, Christian comes out, blamed Arn Anderson for costing him the TNT title, so he's going to cost Arn something. And then Dino Douche walks out of the door and they walk past Bar Brady and the door is open and there is Arn's son, Brock, laying there. Bar Brady reacts in the phoniest way ever. And going in there, Brock even had fake blood on his head. It, I mean, the whole thing was phony as a football bat, but will nobody tell Alex Marvez? Will no one just tell him even? That's unacceptable. Do it over. Act like a living human being. Maybe you're just not cut out for this. It's funny. We're doing serious angles, and your reactions are so fake and so phony and so emotionless that it's humorous. And that's not the emotion we're going for. Can anybody just tell him? Am I exaggerating? I mean, Marvez is terrible on air. Is it completely unprofessional? Is it cable access level? I'm asking you a direct question. Uh, disagree with me if you can. No, I think 
Alex Marvez is really bad on air. All of his stuff looks really bad. And this angle wasn't especially hot either. So then the TBS title was on the line with Chris Statlander against Anna Jay with her manager, Daddy Mac of the Jericho Appreciators in the corner. And I know what you think, and I'm going to say this real briefly. Um, without Alpha Centauri and the Puddin' Gang and etc., Chris Statlander looks like she could walk out on SmackDown or Raw. Yeah. And that is a big compliment <laughs> considering this AEW women's division. I agree. She's got the size. She's got the look. She's an athlete. She's straightened up. It's not comedy anymore. And to be honest, this match started, they were wrestling. And I wrote, God in heaven, they're doing it better than anybody in the Tornado Tag. Anna Jay is rotten, but they kept it simple at the first, and it looked great. And then the, Anna Jay took over, but it was brave. They went to the break, and when they came back, Stadlander was making a comeback, and the fans love her. She's over with them. But they got a little too busy at the end where Daddy Mac would distract her for Anna Jay to take over a second, get a two count, and then Statlander would come back out, and then Daddy Mac would distract again. But finally, Statlander just said, fuck it, right out of that, just hit a tombstone, one, two, three. The finish was too busy. None of us are going to live long enough to see Anna Jay learn to work in a fluid manner. So they should have just giving her a little fucking offense and then Statlander a nice comeback and beat her with the tombstone. And that establishes a baseline. If we can beat Anna Jay like this, the next level up is going to be a little more difficult, etc. But if it was difficult, even with distraction and intervention to beat Anna Jay for Statlander, they, she just beat Jade Cargill. So let's fucking keep that going. That was my comment. Talk to me about your girl, Chris. I thought Statlander looked great. She's over with the fans and can't really say anything bad. I thought the match was good. I think it's the best Anna J match I've seen. I don't think Anna Jay's nearly as rotten as you do. I think that was the word rotten. Rotten. No, I don't think she's rotten. Rancid? Here's the thing. She comes out of QT school. I won't go any further. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen anyone come out of that school. I'm like, damn, they're, they're getting good training there. Statlander comes out of Pat Buck school. You see people come out of that school, you're like, wow, something's going on. They got the basics down. But well, he patterned everything after Ohio Valley LBW, Wrestling. That's his what tenure I've there. That's yeah. what I've heard. But Anna Jay is athletic. She's young. What is she, like 22, 23? Really good looking. She's got it out there, and it's on her shirt, so I'll say it. Great ass. <laughs> and she seems into it. Like... If she didn't move, you would almost think she was like Miss Elizabeth because she's got kind of like that Southern beauty. But then she starts like moving her face nonstop and it's like, you know, not like Missy Hyatt or anything, but it's just, there's character or charisma. There's something there. And she's willing clearly to take crazy bumps when necessary or not necessary. There's something to be done with her. Really good look. Let me add again, really good looking, and she's willing to take bumps and do all this stuff. There's got to be something better to do with her. And uh, I don't think she's that bad in the ring, but she probably... I, I don't know anything about her training. I don't want to say anything else. 
Well, and now Statlander, I guess we're not going to have a rematch with Jane. Jane is taking time off. This long, arduous three-year career she's had of getting put over once a week on television has led her to say, I need a break. Is that true? I hadn't heard that. I heard she's taking time. Where's she been now? She just lost. If she was coming back or not taking time off, shouldn't she be out there going, I want a rematch? I've lost one match in my life. You would think, but it also could be, you know what? I got to 60 wins. I've been working the champion schedule. I don't know if I could do this anymore. I understand why Briscoe and Terry and everyone wanted out. I can't do this anymore. Could be that. Well, I want out, but we got one more match before I can get out. <laughs> the main event, Ricky <laughs> Starks versus Jay White of Gin and Juice. And this is the main event, and this is a grudge match because, as you'll recall, Gin and Juice pretty much kicked the shit out of Ricky Starks last week, right? It was so we could actually remember this happened. And so Ricky Starks jumps Jay White in the aisleway on his entrance in the main event in a grudge match between two guys that are supposed to be pushed as commodities. Fine. Nothing the matter with that. Why did we have two other matches on this same program do the same thing? Is anybody paying a fucking attention or is everybody just allowed to go out and do whatever they want? Yeah. So they have a, uh, the fight goes to the ring and the bell rings and then they fight the other side, out the other side of the ring to the floor. And they spent this entire segment almost on the floor. I, I wrote at one point, this whole thing's going to be on the floor. They got back in the ring. Jay White took a backdrop that got a bigger pop than the first two minutes of the whole match. And then they both rolled back out to the floor. And then Ricky Starks, the people like him and he's good and he's got fire and he's been booked to be left laying on his face or beaten or foiled or demoralized or whatever constantly. He's got a chance here to show what he can do. And Jay White, supposedly this hotshot, great worker from New Japan, opportunity in America where nobody knows who the fuck he is to show what he can do. And they're just having bad, sloppy fighting on the floor like every other match that we see from this company. And then, as Starks goes under the ring, he looks under the ring and can't find what he's looking for. So he looks under the next side. Nothing. He walks past his opponent, who's selling there on the floor, and gives him a half-hearted kick and goes around to the other side of the ring. Instead of just beating the fucking guy up while he's down, he's looking for shit under the ring that he legitimately cannot find. And then, the reason I know that he couldn't find it is because he then turns the stairs over. Thinking, well, I can't find what I'm looking for, so I'll turn the stairs over. But then he sees Jay White staggering up the ramp, and before he runs back, uh, runs after Jay White, he turns the stairs back over. Did you see that? I it's did. like, oh, I, yeah. I can't leave him tipped over like this. He turned him back over the right way and then runs off to catch the opponent. I wrote, what the fuck is happening? The referee has left the ring and they're fighting in the entranceway. 
And the announcers are saying, well, I think it's, it's right of the referee to let him go. This is a grudge match because they even know that there's no way that this shouldn't have been a count out. And I'm never going to see whether Jay White is any good or not because apparently he's never going to have a match on his program. And then they go back to ringside and Jay White tries to get in the ring and Ricky Starks pulls him out and they have more fight on the floor. And then Jay White goes over and grabs the stairs and puts them back in the right place. And then comes back over and fucking takes a suplex from uh, Ricky Starks on the floor. He had to let his opponent recover while he put the stairs back in the right place so that it... And I wrote him, I hallucinating. And then they went to picture in picture. And both guys were never in the ring together until 15 seconds before they came back from the break. So now we are close to 10 minutes into this thing where they have never used the ring. But when they come back from the break, they're in the ring. And White is chopping Ricky Starks. And Ricky Starks is selling. And the people are reacting more than they did to anything in the first 10 minutes of this complete fucking stinker that they've had so far. And then Starks fires back, and White stops him. And then they fought on the top turnbuckle, and White gave him a big superplex. And it looked great, and I wrote, if they'd had a match in front of this, it would be incredible. But they never even got in the ring and started a match until there was seven minutes left on the air in total. So once they started using the ring, their shit was great. And they were taking bumps, and they can work. But by that time, I was just wanting it to be over because I was so fucking bummed out from the first 10 minutes. And then, basically, Starks hit a great spear and then hit his finish, the... <clears throat> what's the, the, the French name of the finish? The no-can-do? Rochambeau. Rochambeau. He hit his finish on White, but White's legs clipped the referee. And the referee goes down, and here come the gun boys. I'm not sure why, when Jay White has a tag team partner, but maybe Juice missed his flight. I don't fucking know. But they hit their finish on Starks, and then White revives the referee and picks Starks up and hits his finish on him. One, two, three. And right before, on that spear and giving Jay White his finish, the people really, really, really wanted Ricky Starks to win. And he didn't, again. And I'm not saying that the heel never can get any heat or fuck the baby face, but Starks has been pummeled. And they're still with him. He's like the AEW LA Knight. And they still want to support him. And every time that the fans do want to support him, they see him get beat and left face down. But this, the last four minutes in the ring gave you the idea that a match between these two guys would have been great. But they didn't have one. And whoever thought if there is no agents, or there are no agents, bad grammar, if there are no agents, if there is no 
instruction from the booker or from the office if they're just allowed to go out and have whatever kind of match they want to have? Why would either one of these guys have thought that it was a thing to do to spend the first 10 minutes on the floor on this program when that's all you'd seen to begin with? And Starks and White, in this field of the people on this television program, we're in the upper echelon of quality of the workers. They could have done well. Instead, we had to sit through complete shit with Ricky Starks looking like an idiot for crawling around under the ring trying to find shit to hit the guy that was laying at his feet to begin with. Your thoughts? Sometimes you lay out the obvious and it's still funny. Um, they didn't pull me into this and maybe it was because I watched live and I saw everything else on the show. But I didn't like this very much. I know everyone really likes Jay White. I'm more impressed with Juice Robinson. Yeah. He's got more size. He's got a cooler look. I think he's a better... I don't want to say he's a better promo, because I know people have raved about Jay White's promo. He's a more charismatic promo. He doesn't talk like another of the endless guys with an accent from the United Kingdom with a trimmed beard and a fucking serious expression. No, you could see him like getting into a fight, like at Waffle Hut. What, what, what is it? Waffle, Waffle House. Waffle Hut. What is the matter with God? You're a fucking Northerner. You can the see him Waffle getting into House. a fight there, and whether he wins or loses, it doesn't matter. He's going to be on the ground, on the pavement, like yeah, you know, he's, doing something nuts. He's going to be chewing on some guy's fucking elbow yeah. down in the, on the asphalt in the parking lot at the Waffle House at two o'clock on Saturday night, Sunday morning. Because that's the way Juice Robinson rolls, by God. And he's going to order them scattered, smothered, covered, and extra crispy on top of that. That's Juice. Jay White's got no fucking personality. We don't know what the fuck's going on with him. Well, we don't do that kind of stuff at Waffle Hut, which is an offshoot of the French Toast Chateau, <laughs> part of the Arcadian Vanguard Restaurant Associates program. But um, the other thing, I guess, with the six-man tag announced for Collision and them doing stuff not going, you know, to a match yet with FTR, and it sucks that we're going to get them in a six-man match before an actual straight-up tag match. But I guess this is their way of moving everyone away. They get away from Starks, because now he's in whatever with the guns. I don't know who he's going to team with against them. And you got Gin and Juice set up for FTR. What if you just told the setup to every joke you know, but never told the punchline? So nobody ever really got it. You just went from one setup to another. That would be great, wouldn't it? Should be a booker. So, Brian, I'm going to be a prognosticator. I'm going to turn into Nostra dumbass here for once because I don't know what the numbers were, but I'm betting that it was worse than last week, but better than the week before. In other words, about the same thing as they've been doing. Well, Jim, the ratings for AEW Dynamite on TBS June 7th, a Wednesday, as always, 903,000 viewers on average. So that was a little down from last week and a little up from the week before about what they've been doing. Well, the show opened quarter one, 8 to 8.15 p.m. Orange Cassidy versus Swerve Strickland with picture in picture, 962 thousand viewers uh, the big bangers must love old pockets by now but now the the debate here is going to be as usual where do they fall off the cliff 
for uh, an average of 903 to start out at 962. Looks to me like they're going to be strong for the first part of the program before they hit the fucking bottomless pit. Go ahead. Segment 2, 8.15 to 8.30 p.m. The final four minutes of Cassidy versus Strickland. The post-match with the Mogul Embassy, Darby Allen and Sting. The Mogul Embassy is what we're calling it now? Well, that's what uh, WrestleNomics called it. These, uh, this data was pulled by WrestleNomics here. Did Lovey do this one, or is Thurston Howell off for vacation this week? Or There was a Jay White video, as well as a Brian Danielson Kazushka Okada video. 924,000 viewers. So, Pockets only drove uh, 38,000 off this week. Segment 3, 8.30 to 8.45 p.m. Chaos versus Blackpool Combat Club. With picture in picture, chaos. The best friends and their other friend. That what that is that what they call him now? Well, the Japanese they, faction with Rocky Romero is chaos. So now, oh, I thought I thought he became a best friend when he was with the other two, isn't it? Two out of three rules. It's two best friends and one chaotic guy. So, if you're in a group called Chaos, do you feel like a moron if you're wrestling the Blackpool Combat Club? We're chaos. Look at these fucking guys. Well, what did? Uh, so basically, what did Best Chaos and uh, the other guys do here? Well, also the uh, Hung Bucks promo backstage, 895,000 viewers. Okay, so that they're dueling, let's see, 24 and 520. They only drove off 29,000, so they're not as good as Pockets. Segment 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., the Kenny Omega Will Ospreay video, MJF and Adam Cole's live confrontation in ring, 955,000 viewers. Wow. So we have not seen a bump like that in a while. Yeah, that's unusual. And that's the 8.45 to 9 p.m. So they apparently wanted to see MJF and Adam Cole talk because that was, what, 12 out of this 15 minutes? That is, uh, they're up 60,000 from the previous quarter. Have you been watching the first? And they overlapped into five at the top of the hour, so we'll see what that is. Go ahead, I'm That's sorry. Right. And if you've been watching the first 45 to 50 minutes, MJF is a breath of fresh air at this point on this program. Yeah. There, there, there must be some kind of concerted effort for people to text their friends or whatever. He's on! Well, segment Turn back on! Well, segment five, the big nine o'clock hour, nine to nine, 15 p.m., the final two minutes of the MJF Cole live promo, as well as the Hardys, Isaiah Cassidy, and Ethan Page's backstage comedy promo, and La Faction Ignober... Yeah, in, in Gobernale... <laughs> the Goobers! The Goobers! Versus Let's Jungle Hook. shorten Hulk. it. The, the Goobers. What did the Goobers do? Well, the faction of Goobers versus Jungle Hook with picture-in-picture... 929,000 viewers. So the goobers. <laughs> one can assume one can assume that nobody turned off the last 3 or 4 minutes or whatever it was of Adam Cole and MJF so we can give the other guys credit for running off 26,000 people. You know what? Even though I wasn't crazy about the entirety of the Adam Cole MJF promo one you at th- least wanted to see where it was going. You wanted to see where it's going, and you know what? At least it didn't end with just a brawl like everything else does. 
like whatever you think of it, there's still room for more. As yeah, opposed they to they didn't do the whole goddamn thing. Exactly. Segment six. six. 915 to 930 p.m. The finish of the Goober Faction versus Jungle Hook. Kanosuke Takeshita versus Our friend Take versus Demon Ace. Oh, Damon Ace, excuse me, not Demon. Damon Ace. <laughs> the Dodd Callis and Takeshita Live promo. Christian Cage's backstage promo and the beginning of Chris Statlander versus Anna J. 863,000 viewers. Ouch. So there we found it because now they've dropped another 37, 66,000. So that uh, they've, they've lost almost 100,000 in the past 30 minutes. Well, segment seven, 9.30 to 9.45 p.m. Chris Statlander versus Anna J. continued and the outcast backstage promo, 847,000 viewers. And bye-bye to 316 more thousand of you. And finally, 9.45 to 10 p.m., segment eight, Ricky Starks versus Jay White with picture-in-picture picture and the post-match with the Guns and Juice Robinson, 845,000 viewers. Gee, Manelli, they couldn't even pick up anything. They lost two more thousand people for the main event. It's not a bad number to end up with considering where they've been in the past. Uh, but they're still, but look at uh, the end. they lost 120,000 from start to finish. You know, look at the end of the show, though. Statlander versus Anna Jay. I would have to go back and check. I'm looking at the trend line here. Didn't drop as much as most of the women's segments at the end of the show usually do. And... Although Ricky Starks has had a good following and people have been into him, and him and MJF now months ago was great on TV, it's him against Jay White. Jay White has not been established enough to pull a number from main eventing this show. So the fact that it was only 845, that it, that it yeah. didn't drop off further, I actually think is pretty good. It's the, it's the little things, Brian. It's the small victories. Meanwhile... And again, you know, somebody asked me on Twitter, well, why don't you go through the SmackDown ratings or the Raw ratings like this minutely? Well, number one, the Raw ratings is 12 quarters. It's ridiculous. And you know what it's going to be. First hour is okay. Second hour is usually the biggest one. Third hour drops off because what the fuck? And with SmackDown, as, uh, as we saw last week, and I think we forgot to mention it on the last program, last week's SmackDown number was enormous for modern times um and the final quarter with the bloodline roman reigns thousand day ceremony was 2.9 million viewers and you know honestly to be quite honest the bloodline thing is has to be what's carrying the whole deal because there's not that much interesting going on otherwise but good lord the people are liking that and that was the end my point to be made, the end of the two-hour program was the highest-rated segment of the program because people wanted to see that. They weren't watching a show that they were saying, okay, good God, we know what's coming up, and we don't give a shit. And phew, that's the difference. You know, <laughs> They're pretty consistent. They do not lose. The WWE does not lose. 20 to 25% of their audience from start to finish on a show usually, unless it's the three-hour Raw, and then, actually, they don't lose that percentage. 
they lose more viewers because they start out with many more, but they don't lose that much. This show, you can't watch the whole goddamn thing because it's just endless, same, chaos, violence, not even violence, just wreckage. They're not really mad, you can tell that, but they're just hurting each other. But they're cooperating when they do it. Anyway, and those by the are way, the numbers there. What? You brought up the SmackDown numbers last week, which was the 1,000-day celebration. For the record, the show started with 2.45 million viewers. It ended with 2.9 million viewers. There you, they, they picked up, what's 450,000 to 2.5 million? That's, they picked up almost 20%, didn't they? And the key demo is interesting, too. Starts at 860,000 viewers, ends at 1.13 million. So the well, advertisers and the network love that. And uh, again, that's what I'm saying is that, that all the, there's, not, there's not anything interesting on the WWE program except the bloodline. So when the bloodline does something, the people fucking love it because they're starved. And over on the other channel, you can't get fucking hungry because they won't stop feeding you. So it's complete polar opposites. But the one seems to be working, the starvation thing. Hey, you, you lock somebody up in the fucking closet and you only pitch them a sandwich every couple of days, they're going to love the fucking sandwich, right? That's what the experience I've usually had with people that's been in my closet. What about you, Brian? I have not had that experience. Maybe people you... don't get hungry in your closet? I, I don't lock people in my closet. How many people have you locked in your closet? I'm not allowed at liberty right now to enumerate. Have you been locked in the closet? No, I got the key. Before you had a key, no one just pushed you in and locked the door and ran away? No, no, I had the closet built. <laughs> there are other closets, Jim. Hodgkiss got, didn't invent the closet. <laughs> I, no, this is a good closet. You can't get out of this closet. You can get out of a lot of closets. But no, I got a brand new built-in closet, and I got the only key. All right, so before we go any further to SmackDown this week, which won't take long, what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on at the Wrestling News, the Arcadian Vanguard, and all the fine programming that you do on the side over there? We got a brand new pair of roller skates, and you got a brand new key. No, another fine week of programming on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information. Thank you, Melanie. Get information about all the shows. Thank you very much. Get information about all the shows. On Twitter at Super Podcasts, you say shit and it makes me smile and I can't talk. Or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. Of course, if you want your wrestling news for free every day with no opinion, no conjecture, just the straight news, get it from the wrestling news directly from the wrestlingnews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcast. Once again, Free daily wrestling newscast from the Wrestling News. Also, videos up on the official Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel. Speaking of which, I want to mention Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon, a very popular show on the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Many great episodes. He just put up one with Kurt Fuller, an interview with the man who played Brell in No Holds Barred. You should check that out. But one of the things that we're going to be doing is bringing some of the episodes in the past and future episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle to the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel. And one of the exciting things, Jim, going on is Brian Solomon 
who of course worked for WWE Magazine years and years ago, has a great collection of audio that's never been heard before of people he interviewed for the magazine. We're going to start introducing some of these segments onto the show. I have a small sample I'd like to play for you, Jim. Well, I'd like to hear it, Brian. Here's Brian Solomon talking to Dusty Rhodes. Well, so something else that you've been known for through your career, uh, obviously, we'd we be leaving that if we didn't talk about it, is you're definitely one of the most famous bleeders in the history of wrestling. I mean, did you just wake up one morning and, and decide that you were just going to be the greatest bleeder in the history of the business? How did that happen? Uh, by getting hit in the head more than anybody else in our business. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the only way you become a bleeder. It's like fighters, Chuck Webner and them guys. I mean, you get hit in the head. I was in many vicious battles. No, that's a, that's a ridiculous and stupid question. <laughs> I would say I woke up one morning and said, I'm going to become one of the bleeders. I think during that era of the, you know, the mid, from the mid-80s on back to when I started in 70, you know what I mean, the 69. Right. That was an era of realness, and there was an era of uh, old-timers and, and different things that happened. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just, uh, so I woke up and said, I'm going to be a bleeder. Right. I right. should have ducked. I should have ducked a lot more and dodged a lot more. Let me put it like that. That's probably Other than true. That, you know, that's uh, that's what happened in that case. But, uh, no, a lot of pain, blues, and agony. Late on my noggin. <laughs> well, there's a small sample of it. Brian Solomon then, talking to Dusty Rhodes. Let after, after the last 15 years, Brian asked better questions now. Again, it was for WWE Magazine. It was a long time ago. <laughs> and, you know... It is crazy to think about considering where we are today. I mean, here we are doing this show, and there are other shows, and so many things have happened. But even though there were already shoot interviews at that time, especially for a company publication, kayfabe was broken and things were talked about, but they were still... There was, the old guard especially still had their guard up. Yeah. And, and Dusty, good God, if he'd have been asked that question... Ten years before that, he would have given the John Wayne backhand to whoever it was. And it, there were, you know, some things you still, you know, the guys didn't talk about at that, even when the horse had left the barn, as Mama Cornette used to say. Um, you know, you, you couldn't bring yourself to talk about it, especially if, you know, if you're doing something official for the company, maybe, you know, if he was sitting down at a fan fest and, you know, in a candid moment, as they say. But even then, it took a while before everybody got used to the fact that what the fuck is everybody? They're just talking about it. So what the fuck? But you see, Dusty thought it was a ridiculous question. If Brian Solomon asked that same question to, say, John Moxley, <laughs> it'd be like, what a brilliant question. Yes, I did. I woke up and said, I'm going to be the best bleeder ever. I woke up on a boxcar, headed to Dayton. We'll hear more from Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. Like I said, Kurt Fuller on a recent episode. Get it at suawpod.com or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. All right, well, now that we have imparted that information, let's get to the last segment of the program, otherwise known as the SmackDown Review, As the Bloodline Turns. When last we left the citizens of Crabwell Falls, 
Jimmy Uso and Jey Uso were on the outs. It's this whole program. We're basically going to talk about what the bloodline did and then mention matches in between because they didn't take long and they weren't that interesting. But they've got they've got this thing again where people are now trying to figure out as we are too, because to be honest, if you put this all together and probably watched a compilation of it every week, there's probably many loopholes you'd see, but they've spread it out enough that we can't really keep track of who the fuck's on whose side, right? It's a who done it or who will do it. And they recapped the last, um, the bloodline blow up at the, thousand day celebration and then opened up with Paul and solo in the ring. But before Paul could even finish introducing himself, I'm sure there's several people in the audience still have questions over what his name is. Immediately Jay comes out by himself. Boom. And Jay starts giving solo a raft of shit for turning on their brother and tells Paul Lee to say, tell it, whatever you got to say to me, say it. And Paul's first word, you got this all wrong. <laughs> Paul is so entertainingly slimy, is he not? In real life or on TV? Well, no, it, 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 I don't know how entertaining it is in real life, but on TV, he's just entertainingly slimy. He's the con man, just wonderfully smarmy when he's trying to you know pitch you sell you the used car right it's all jimmy's fault because jimmy made up his mind for you too and he even he moves solo back and he speaks to jay intimately and he that jimmy's always done his own thing and he's resented you because jimmy knows that roman wants to make you the next tribal chief it was never going to be jimmy he was the older brother, but it's never going to be Jimmy. It's all going to be about you. And to prove that, tonight, I've got you a match where you're going to face Austin Theory for the U.S. title to bring blood, go, blood to the gold mine. That's what they're... The gold mine. <laughs> they're going to bring gold to the bloodline. But wouldn't that be good? On AEW, they could bring blood to the gold mine. Or mud to the bloodline? Well, <sighs> one or the other. They can bring something. But anyway, basically, the story is that if Jay wins the U.S. title, then Roman Reigns will, and this was a quote, publicly groom him. I guess he's going to wash his ass like they do in the you know Japanese young boys, maybe comb his hair, trim it, style his beard. He's going to publicly groom him to become the next tribal chief. But he needs the answer now. And Jay's thinking and thinking, 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 man. And Paul, uh, you know, he says, I'll take you up on, on that uh, U.S. title match. And Paul offers his hand <laughs> and the fans start screaming, don't shake it, don't shake it. So Jay looks at him and milks it and says, I'll get back to you on that handshake. And he walks off and Paul stays like he's pissed now. Oh, boy. Left him hanging. So that was the first segment. And now we know that there's something to stay tuned for. Something's going to happen. So they, and as long as they're going to tease it, which they are, they pretty much decided on this program, that was all we needed. And they may have been right. 
because as uh, the fast nationals, as they say, they were up against the big NBA game and still did an average of what, 2.4 something million viewers. Uh, after that was the Money in the Bank qualifier with Muhammad Ali and Pablo Escobar. Did you watch any of that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't let you say anything about the promo. Yeah, I'll talk about that match in a second. I just want to say, I mean, I don't have anything to add to the promo, but we're talking about the ratings. I guess the other big story, and maybe we can address it further when we have some numbers, maybe on the drive through or next week, the shows are all drawing. Like, they're selling out buildings. It's a yeah. hot thing to be there for. I don't know if they've had anything like that in a long time, especially if it's not really match-based, and it's not, where people just want to be there to be a part of this, because this is happening. I agree. But at those prices, if you got to pay the equivalent of a monthly rent on a department to go to a wrestling show, you might as well go to the ones doing all the big ratings, has all the big stars, right? And you want to be able to say, I was there the night that Jey Uso did this to Jimmy Uso, or this person did this to Roman Reigns. It's not about, I saw this match. It's, I saw Sammy crack up Jey Uso. I want to be there to see Roman groom Jay. I don't want to be around that. Why do you want to see that? Well, maybe they'll use Manscaped. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> so, see, we're going to get those... What a beautiful way to incorporate the sponsor into the show. <laughs> I wish they were scheduled for this program, but... <laughs> You'll remember them in your hearts, folks. We'll have an update on, on them probably by next week. But anyway, so the Money in the Bank qualifier <laughs> was Muhammad Ali and Pablo Escobar, and they had L.A. Knight doing color, and they did lots of flips and dives. You have anything to add to that? I thought it was a good match, actually. Uh, I watched it mainly because I wanted to hear L.A. Knight on commentary, but then I actually liked the match. Both guys are baby faces, I think. So it was an interesting thing. The one thing that stood out, though, it was, it's stupid to do it, but then you saw it happen, you're like, ooh, Escobar hits Mustafa Ali with a Hurricane Rana when Ali's standing on the stairs, but when Escobar goes down, it sounds like he slammed his head into the fucking <laughs> stairs, because think about it, if you're Hurricane Ronning someone and they're standing yes. there, your head's going to hit, and it did, and Ray came right over to him afterwards, I think, to check on him. But they showed the replay. You don't actually see it, but you hear it, and you see where his head would have hit. That was my big takeaway. But it was a good match, actually. Well, I'm sure it was a good match between two people at, you know, what's fuck? And the money in the bank. There's going to be six people in a fucking ladder match twice on the show. Men and women. Blah. So then we get back to the good stuff. As the bloodline turns, Sammy was in the back with Jay. and. Sammy's telling Jay the bloodline was some of the best times of his life and, you know, all the things they did. And Jay's kind of smiling, thinking back fondly in better days, you know. And in Sammy's, uh, Roman is the issue. He's a manipulator. He does all these things that he does. And Sammy hopes that Jay wins the U.S. title. But he tries to remind him that Jimmy is his brother. And, you know, and and he needs to think and look deep within himself and blah, blah, blah. So now Jay's all fucked up, yeah, right? How, how many times have these two specifically met in the alleyway or the hallway yes. or whatever <laughs> and had these conversations where you're like, well, they can't do that again. They really hate each other. And then the back to this with, you know, it's like he's Jay Uso's Jiminy Cricket. I can't explain 
<laughs> this relationship. Like, no matter what they've been through, he's still like, let me tell you, family fur. Like, whatever the fuck he's telling to him here, or saying to him here in English. Uh, I mean, it's fine for what it is, but I'm not, I'm getting well, sick and, of and these. Also, again, we're, this has completely become a dramatic television program rather than a sporting event or a wrestling show because yes. the camera is sitting there right in front of them while they're having the intimate personal conversation. But again, I'm locked in that closet. I need me a sandwich. They're going to throw me a sandwich with this thing. It's something's going on. It's preposterifying, but something. Uh, and then Alba Fire and Isla Dawn were interrupted by Rhonda oh, and Shayna. But please say you watch this. No, no. Oh I, I noticed that Rhonda was once, for once, was dressed up and had her hair done and didn't look like she just changed her own oil over at Browsy Acres. She, but uh, no, otherwise, she what happened? No, Rhonda looked good. Rhonda and Shayna came in there and basically said they wanted take the other belts also. And this is my first time really seeing Isla and uh, who's the other one? Ilba. Alba, Ilba, Alba, Alba Melba, Ilby? Melba and toast. Mel, Mel, Melba and toast. There we go. Let me just make that change now. Melba and toast. It was my first time seeing them. And I don't know if they've always been this hammy and awful when on the mic, but this was, this was pretty uh, cringy. This was not good. I don't think. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, they got in a fight, and they beat up Ronda and Shayna. Ronda Rousey, former UFC champion, baddest woman on the planet, and Shayna Baszler with an MMA background not too bad herself, and these two Muppets from NXT. All right, they did a nice tribute package to the Iron Sheik. That was, that was nice and classy. Then we came to... The Money in the Bank qualifier between Bailey and Mia Yim. For whatever purpose, AJ Styles on, on color, well, we'll find out the purpose because Bailey beats Mia Yim in two minutes. Scarlett comes to the desk, blows glittery powder in AJ's eyes, and Cross comes from behind in the crowd and puts him in a sleeper. Best use of Cross yet. Whatever you want to say. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't great, but they didn't beat him. And he came out there and he beat someone who's been presented in the mix of being a top guy. He was just in the uh, championship title match. I saw like Excalibur. In the championship match. And you know what? They looked like heels. They did something to AJ. AJ got nothing back on him. He, I mean, it was kind of a cool visual of Cross carrying Scarlet away while she's, you know, loving it. Not bad. Let's see where they go with it. Cross versus AJ. What I loved was... Scarlet comes up at ringside and appears in front of the desk. So AJ gets up and, you know, his, his attention is on her, but the camera shot, you see Cross because he's a big fucking tattooed guy and he's got no goddamn shirt on. He's walking through the crowd, right, to come up from behind AJ. You got, you got him in the shot, so you see him coming. And I'm just thinking, he, you know, he's walking purposely and he's right through the fucking, coming right through the people. I have seen in the past Hacksaw Butch Reed, Troy Graham the Dream Machine, Hercules Hernandez, one of the most goddamn jacked-up fucking badass-looking people. He looked like a goddamn in-shape bruiser Brody. And several other people run to the ring as fast as they can to attack a baby face and still get tackled by some fucking schlub in the crowd and have the hell of a goddamn fight you've ever seen. And this guy that everybody can see from 500 yards is just walking purposely through the crowd to do this damage. And they're like, oh, 
He's going to go kill AJ. They don't give a shit. Ugh. So after that bit of business, we go to the back where Bianca is complaining to Pierce about Oscar. And I'm thinking at this point, is this SmackDown or Women of Wrestling? Because this is predominantly female program here. Well, Pierce goes to the ring and brings out Oscar. She's recently... Now, here's the thing. She's on SmackDown, but she was the Raw Women's Champion. Help me out with this. So, Oscar gives Pierce the old Raw Women's Belt, and he gives her a new belt, which he calls the new Women's Title Belt, not Raw or SmackDown, but just Women's Title. It looks the same except that it's gold, not red, like the one they just gave Roman Reigns. So now Oscar has a belt that looks, or not Roman, but the other champion, Seth Franklin. So what the fuck is going on here? Is there a SmackDown women's champion? Is it she turned in the Raw women's belt, so she's just the women's champion? What about Rhea Ripley? What about Rhea Ripley? She was supposed to be the... SmackDown Women's Champion, right? But she was on. She's now on she's Raw. On Raw. Is she the so SmackDown she Champion? Got? Well, I don't fucking know. That's what I'm asking you. Now, strange as it may seem, they give these baseball players weird names these days. You got who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. Well, I know who's in Gorilla. Bill. Bill's on Gorilla. Yeah. All right. So anyway, call me Bill. <laughs> suddenly, Bill Moxley. Charlotte's music plays, and she makes a surprise entrance. And it, Pierce says that Charlotte needs to get in line for a shot at the title, and she says she made the line. And meanwhile, she's standing there, and she's wearing... I don't know what kind of fucking heels, how big they might have been. She's a tall girl anyway. So now she's got these stilts on, and Oscar looks like she's, because she ain't a tall girl, but now there's a foot and a half height difference, and Oscar is wearing this new belt that's as big as her entire upper body. It goes from mid-cleavage to fucking upper fupa. And, it, out of the, and then Charlotte challenges Oscar, and Oscar screams and gargles yes in the way that she does these things. And then she goes for the mist, but Charlotte ducks it and kicks her, and she rolls out on the floor. And that's what happened there. The replay of that looked really great, where she went for the mist and Charlotte ducked out. It was a good mist replay. I'll give it that. Um, what's going on here? Who's? I don't exactly know. I mean, here's Charlotte reappearing, still as a baby face, got a nice reaction. Nothing against Charlotte, but all the Bianca stuff is still up in the air with Asuka think they're going to switch Bianca heel because she's not happy it's something that I would think about doing maybe but the other issue is like you said I didn't know if it was just me and I missed an explanation I couldn't understand why they were giving her the new belt or what it signified that's what I'm saying she turns in the raw belt yeah, why? on Smackdown because <laughs> she's apparently on Smackdown now so they give her a new belt but they don't call it the Smackdown's title the Smackdown women's title they call it the women's title we're probably giving this too much time. Are they going to give Rhea a new belt? Just Is this their way of just well, saying... Everybody gets a belt. No, but is this their way of saying like we put the wrong people on the wrong show, so we're just going to take the name of the show off the belt and give you a new belt? 
I don't know. Maybe Rhea could be the Universal Women's Champion. I'm rubbing my face. Let's move on. So in the back, Paul and Jay. And Paul is like, you know, he's all smiles. He, hey, leaving me hanging on the handshake. That, that was good TV. But I need your passport and I need your measurements. You're going to be flying to Money in the Bank with Roman next week on the private jet. And Roman's going to be here for the, or no, not next week, but at Money in the Bank. But next week, Roman's going to be here for the celebration of you winning the, the United States title from theory tonight. And he's going to make the public announcement that you're going to be the next tribal chief. And Jay is happy about that. But he's not sure why Paul's happy about it, because he tells Paul, if he's in the bloodline, meaning himself, Jay, then Paul is out of the bloodline. And then Paul's got the look on his face, and Jay walks off smiling. So I didn't see that one coming. Because now it's you or me, oh, wise man. Of course, again, <laughs> this is the most untrustworthy bunch of people. They're all willing to turn on each other. But goddamn, they're keeping us guessing. What do you think? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I like it all, but I want <laughs> it all to get somewhere already. <laughs> well, they, they don't want us to get anywhere while they're doing these ratings. Um, and by the way, as we predicted in the back, Bianca was mad at Pierce that Charlotte gets a match with Oscar. And then Butch beat Baron Von Corbin in two minutes in a Money in the Bank qualifying match. And then Corbin got in a fight and got beat up by Car Carmelo Hayes and his friend Trick. Who apparently he's feuding with on NXT. And then a minute later, he got beat up by Cameron Grimes, who I forgot he was feuding with on this show. How many people is he feuding with? Well, it's just everybody gets to beat up Baron Von Corbin. There's not really any point to any of it. And yes, he did get then laid out when he complained about the way he was treated by the other two. Uh, fucking Cameron Grimes came out and whacked him and knocked him out too. And then EO Sky beat Shotzi in a Money in the Bank qualifying match in two minutes. And that's not two minutes to break. That's just two minutes. And then... Back to the reason why we're all here. Owens and Sammy are in the back. And we think, okay, this is going to be some bloodline business, right? But no, they are confronted by Pretty Deadly. And now I've heard them talk. And that's enough for me. Because they sound as ridiculous as they look. But suddenly, here comes the brawling brutes. And here comes Gallows and Anderson. And here comes the LWO. And here comes the street sweepers within seconds of each other, walking into the frame and standing in a very unnatural V so that the camera can, because it's a fucking one camera shoot in the locker room, can get them all in. And they all want tag team title shots. And Owen starts screaming at the top of his lungs, what's going on? They're too close to me. And so now is he just, is is this, he's supposed to be capable of losing his mind and his temper at any point and just going off? Is that his new gimmick? It seems like it. I hate these kind of segments. Everyone just walks in the room. No one has seen anyone getting ready to walk into the room. They're all just there doing their little 
Yeah, it's you don't even Shit. hear a door slam. No. They just suddenly, well, they were standing right there. Why didn't you raise this issue before we started talking on television? Anyway, so Pierce makes a gauntlet match for next week, and everybody randomly starts screaming, loud noises! And that was that. Please, they did a package on Grayson Waller. I wish they'd wrap him up in a package and send him back wherever he came from, get him a new name and a different haircut, and maybe let him age five years. Um, and then we come to the main event of the evening. Brian, were y'all set and ready for this? Our boy Theory, Jay Uso. Who's going to be in the bloodline? Is it going to be Paul? Is it going to be Jay? Who's going to be the next tribal chief? What's going on? They've got the table set. The U.S. title on the line, they ring the bell. What'd you think, Brian? I hate to say because I like Theory and I like Jey Uso, but I didn't give a shit about the match. <laughs> I was just waiting for whatever drama was going to play out, and based on what time it was when this aired, I knew there was still time for drama. Yes, and it was very dramatic. By the way, they started this match that they we built up to all night, and they, honest to God, went a minute or less until Theory got knocked over the announcer's desk and they went to break. Right to commercial, as soon as the thing got going. And I, 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 what the fuck? About three minutes later, three and a half minutes, whatever, I'm like, okay. That killed some of my momentum. They come back, they have a big yay-boo exchange. Jay wins it, gets a big pop. Theory starts the heat, Jay fights back. Super kicks Theory into the referee, and the referee goes down. <laughs> and apparently not only goes down, but falls into the fucking pit at, at ringside that Sheldon Benjamin fell, to, fell into last week because <laughs> he was gone for about the next three minutes. And Jay hits a splash off the top, and he's got Theory covered for more than a three count, but there's no referee. And then here comes Pretty Deadly. Why do they have to be involved in this? They come out and nail Jay and then just get in the ring like they've got all the time in the world. But here comes Jimmy Uso and he shit cans pretty deadly. But here comes Solo and nails Jimmy. Now, I'm not sure why Solo nailed Jimmy. Because <laughs> Jimmy's out. Well, but Jimmy's helping... Is it, it, it Jimmy is helping Jay, who is still technically in. So if Jimmy's helping Jay, wouldn't that mean that Jimmy is trying to get back in instead of spiking him? Wouldn't we ask him first? I don't know. Unless Solo has a terminate on site order from Roman Reigns. Well, there you go. And Paul was there. So anyway, Solo nails Jimmy and goes to give him the spike. But Jay stops him. No, you can't do that to my brother. And then Jimmy goes to fight back against Solo by going to super kick him, but Solo moves and Jimmy super kicks Jay. And then Jimmy grabs Solo and, and shit cans him eventually. He got hung a little bit and does a dive over the top rope on him. But in the ring, Theory has come back and covered Jay and the referee is suddenly alive. One, two, three. So Jay has lost his U.S. title opportunity and it's Jimmy's fault. So now the fallout is Solo and Paul Lee are in the aisle watching Jimmy try to explain to Jay that it was a mistake. 
and Jay walks out on Jimmy, but when he passes Paul and Solo, Paul said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Jay walks out on them too, but then Paulie smiles and tells his phone to call Roman Reigns. Dun, 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 dun. What is Roman doing on Friday night? So he's not even watching the show. He's holding on to his phone to wait for Paul to call him. Why doesn't he just watch the show? He won't have to wait for the call. Because he wants to hear from Paul what really happened, rather than just what he's seeing with his own two eyes on national television. But we've got to get the organ music. Brian, I know we have no budget for this program, but we got to get the old soap opera radio program organ music to go to these dramatic breaks. Will Jay reunite with Jimmy? What will Paul say to Solo? Will Roman get involved? Tune in next week on As the Bloodline Turns. But that was the wrestling program, folks. Is this my program? <laughs> that's I'm trying to find solutions here. I don't know if any of That's not are... really it. Yeah, no. You know what I'm going that's more that's I know, more... I know. I just clicked something. You know, Baptist church kind of thing. They they play in intermission. Well anyway, we'll uh, play around with this. We'll work on that. I would have thought you'd have had that pipe organ ready to go. It's on the other side of the room. I can't bring it over here to the microphone. All right, now you're getting lazy. All right, anyway, do we have anything else to cover here? Uh, all the bases. On the drive-thru in a few days. Well, there you go. And folks, thank you for hanging with us while we got through all of this. And I don't even remember what we started with. So if you enjoyed it, thank you very much. If you didn't, well, fuck all y'all. Thank you, fuck you, and bye-bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo
much Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, mom, don't come in. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Oh, this is wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corny, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife or get them in the hot tub to play spot the submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero the young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? Uh, no. Did you the Wi-Fi password? Mom! Oh. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Elser says I'm in the key demo I'm 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single male, I'm in the key demo oh, oh, oh. Elser says I'm in the key demo